Autobots, transform! <laughs> Not you, Bumblebee. Welcome back to more and less than meets the eye. This is a Transformers podcast in which we alternate between the critically panned live action movies and the critically acclaimed Transformers comic books by James Roberts. This is episode 12. It is a new era. Just as last week with Bumblebee, we left Michael Bay behind. Here on the comic side, we are leaving behind the name more than meets the eye. We are on to Lost Light. This is the first half of it. Volumes 1 and 2, issues 1 to 12. Uh, we will get into why it's called Lost Light and like what does that even mean in a second. But first, I must introduce my illustrious co-host, Benjamin. How are you doing? I'm doing good. It feels like it's been a while since you recorded, and that's because it is. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, it's fine. I mean, I've been <laughs> stupidly busy as well, so it's been good to have some time yeah. to knuckle down and actually read these books. It's very funny that mm. the Lost Light series now yes. is being a very similar position in our podcast as it is actually in the publishing world, where <laughs> in the comics that are being published as concurrently with Transformers Lost Light. Lost Light is basically taking place over like the span of a few weeks, mm. whereas the rest of the books are kind of like jumping on ahead to kind of the end of the, the ITW-verse. Not, not for another two years, obviously, because we're only just at the beginning now, but like they are getting towards that. And the first issue of Lost Light comes out in 2016, which is a full two years before Bumblebee came out. So we've got this yeah, like weird, <laughs> weird moment where like the movies have now thoroughly overtaken where we are in the in the comic books and Lost Light is literally at its kind of stationary point at the same point yeah. that it is in the comic books. Yeah. So as we alluded to on the last comic book uh, episode, like all of the books kind of came to an end at the point that Lost Light issue one released. It had been five real world months since issue 55. So there were two more issues, which we didn't cover, but that's because they're part of something completely separate. They have like none of the characters we are invested in. Yeah, they relaunched the whole line. They ended the books. We get three new books. We have Optimus Prime, which is the main book. It carries on Optimus's plot with the humans and colony planets and what's going on with Shockwave, who might still be alive. Spoilers. Uh, we have Till All Are One, which carries on what the other book originally was with Starscream's nefarious political machinations on Cybertron and we have Lost Light which is basically just more than meets the eye volumes 11 onwards it is the least sort of impacted by the change there are changes absolutely but compared to the other two that just get completely retooled like the other book splits into two the original mission statement is now like a secondary character book and and the main book is is all optimus all the time which is very funny because when these books launched way back when the mandate was no optimus no megatron wars over no space bridges no teleporting around the universe and now it's like all that all the time <laughs> so here we are with lost light as you recall where we left off before they beat the djd they miraculously survived but then a bomb was teleported into the inside of the necrobots planet and it went off and that was our cut to white in an almost sopranos-esque ending <laughs> for the show but no i should note before we actually dive into it there's been a mystery <laughs> for every episode that I think only ever made sense to me because James Roberts, for every issue of the comic, provided his, like, this is the soundtrack to this issue. Here are, like, three to five songs that, like, stick them on while you're reading it. This is the vibe for the issue. And myself, like many others, 
either like went and got somebody else who'd done it or compiled our own like giant playlist of his all the songs and like you know i listen to a lot of them and some of it i'm like yeah not so much for me some of it i already knew some of it is like brand new music where i'm like oh wow i fucking love this song and unbelievably i had avoided the decemberists as a concept (laughs) for forever and issue one of lost light features the song this is why we fight which is the ending song for this podcast done in a less lively rendition than i requested but it's still wonderful that song just always stuck with me as like like there are even uh, like songs on the on the soundtrack that are specifically designated as like theme song opening credits ending credits like character theme song and this isn't even one of those but to me this has always been my version of of the theme song for the whole book um, this is why we fight by the Decemberists. I think it just really captures the spirit of the crew, and it's you know it's 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 just always been a song I've really really loved, and that is why it's the ending credits, and it has finally come up in an issue that like I think it's a good issue, but it's not exactly like one of the the landmark giant issues. So that might be why I'm saying like to only me does this make sense as a big one to use because there are bigger like needle drops throughout the run yeah <laughs> it's also funny to me because this is like two decemberist albums past where i kind of like I stopped paying attention to them well, my decemberist is like those first four albums like castaways and cutouts through the crane life yep. and then uh, hazards of love king is dead i would kind of put on and go like eh, they're not as good as like yeah. when they used to be like i mean i i should say i then like went whole catalogue and like i i know every decemberist album now and like big big fan in general and i acknowledge that like that as my jumping on point is akin to my friend at work huge star trek fan got into it through the jj abrams movies which is just not a journey anyone in the history of star trek fandom has had (laughs) but very funny to me yeah that's me i got into the decemberist through this is why we fight so there you go that is that mystery explained if you've been listening all the way to the end credits of our episodes for 13-ish weeks then that is why it ends with that quite melancholy version of that song <laughs> it's good i mean I, I it's nice because i feel like the there is something very british about it because it really yeah. is that kind of like the new wave of british comic writers that kind mm. of took place in the late 2010 uh, late 2000s that are super into music and you mm-hmm. like it, it kieran gillen john allison and james roberts are three people who mm-hmm. obviously think about music a lot obviously listen to music a lot when they write and i'm not saying this isn't true for a lot of american writers but they are people who write about music yeah. outside of their comic work and and kind of put it out there i mean obviously john allison i think he's dating or was dating a very prominent uk uh, music journalist so it right. would make sense why he would do that but and, and the reason i bring up those three is because obviously they were all writing their big books around the same time that lost yeah. light is coming out and there is a, a very big sense of british humor and kind of dour british sensibilities and especially kind of british political sensibilities that that goes yeah. through those books and i mean this is maybe the most political overtly political arc well, of the entire comic that we're yeah. about to run into so volume one the arc is called dissolution it is very very clearly aimed at the rise of the political right very specifically brexit but you do explicitly have a character using the term fake news in volume two we're going back to the functionalist universe and yeah it it is so thinly veiled that it is a critique of brexit with the council of like sold the moon and banned travel on and off world and are like stoking fear of aliens to keep the 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 populace obedient and fear over fact and and 
experts are to be feared and, and all of this stuff. And Yeah, we're, we're getting into isolationist policies yeah, where, yeah. where we're basically at this point where, I mean, and I kind of wish they would dive into it with Rewind because obviously that's mm. Rewind's whole yeah. perspective when he kills Megatron a couple of arcs ago where he was basically like, well, maybe for the good of the universe we should have been isolated. And obviously that comes into play here where yeah. the Functionist universe is in, in, in inherently isolationist concept. Although, do, it, it doesn't it get into they want to then go out and like kill well, all... Well, they, yeah, they basically un- undermine rewinds justification because they're like oh if you give them long enough they too will take their like <laughs> their mission worldwide and or universe wide and start conquering people yeah it's it, the, the birth of the british empire where yeah. it's like one yeah. person basically goes like look at the crimes that the empire has committed we should stop doing this and and yeah. kind of like hold ourselves away and withdraw ourselves whereas this one is like we should hold ourselves away withdraw ourselves so we can shore up our strength and go out there and do what we did <laughs> 200, 300 years ago. Oh, by gosh, wasn't life better when we had an empire? Oh, boy. I'm going to, in the interest of my own sanity and the (laughs) audio flow of this podcast, we're going to put a pin in the whole we're going to the functionalist universe thing. And we've got some other stuff to deal with first. I will say that the books throughout this, there are like several plot lines that they do actually bleed together really organically and it's actually quite smart how it's done. We're separating them out to talk about them as completely separate entities, but yeah, if you're reading it, they they do flow really nicely. So we have to meet some new characters. New book always means new characters. It's what happened after Dark Cybertron with season two and we brought on some new crew. Anode and Lug, they are treasure hunters. They are chased by a murderous Decepticon and moments before their certain death, they are grabbed by the Necrobot and spirited away to Necroworld. So, Anode is a treasure hunter. Lug turns into Anode's backpack and carries tools. They are there. They dig up a little metallic snowflake, which will be very, very important over the next hour or so of audio. Um, they're, they're, like, in a little panic bubble, and, and like, Anode forgot they, they sold their teleporter bracelets, so they are, in fact, trapped and about to die. We'll get into more Anode stuff in, in a bit, like the big thing, if you know, you know. But just to say up front, like, I do think Anode is funny and fun. Anode is, I think, detested by a sector of quite negative fans. And I don't agree with their reasons. Like, th- these, this is the crowd that think that Roberts is obsessed with, like, Mary Sue's and inserting these kind of, like, woke characters that are better than all of the strong ones you loved as a kid or whatever. I don't agree with it from that point, but I will say... On my very first read-through of all of this, however many years ago, I did find her a little bit annoying, and you and I were talking about this ahead of the podcast, like, you said she has huge new main character energy. Part of it may be that, like, Roberts has this break from writing, so he, like, he's, like, stored up all his quips, <laughs> like, this first issue especially lays them on so thick, like, there are so many funny little lines that, like, if you find that kind of stuff, a, like, a little bit obnoxious, this issue might be a bit much for you. As I said, yeah. I think it's all quite funny, but yeah, Anode is, is very, very a lot. <laughs> I'm not gonna say Anode is like Poochie, because I think that is... <laughs> A very bad comparison, yes, and also, but it does have that energy of, like, I can imagine the response to this first issue being very similar to the way that the kids act in The Simpsons when they see the first episode (laughs) with Poochie, where it's like, they're waiting to see the fireworks factory, or, in this case, the conclusion to, like, what happened with the bomb. And instead, the first issue is just like, look, here's this brand new character that you guys kind of like have to get to know. And I don't think that any new character introduction into these books has been done smoothly. 
Mm. Really, I think Megatron is the only one who actually kind of like slots in quite well. I think a lot of the other new characters have kind of been. It's been a bumpy ride because there's a lot of stuff they have to get kind of like going for them to eventually fit in, and like, and then like by the to... time you're attached to Nautica, it's almost like, well, the book's over now. Bye. <laughs> yeah. And so it is this kind of like, it, it's just a bumpy ride a little bit when new characters have to come in because the cast is so big and mm. space has to be taken away from characters who you love. And you really do feel it in this kind of opening arc where Anode is kind of, I don't know if she's the, the B or the C storyline, because obviously the Functionalist Universe does become the A storyline yeah. eventually. I'd call it the, mm. yeah, it's, it's difficult. I feel like the B is split between two because they do, again, they kind of bleed into each other. Like the reason for Whirl and Cyclonus's little adventure does come from the Anode side. And yeah, but yeah, they're very, very quippy, both of them. There's there's lines like, you know, Cybertron is practically made of war and I am in hate with you and ask me closer to the time when closer to the time is like, they have 30 seconds to live and like, what do you plan to do to get out of this? And yeah, just, just very, very quippy, which bleeds into like, or well, it, it carries on when, so 500 years later, they join other newly awoken missing characters. As, as you may recall, Necrobot had like a little chamber of pods full of people from history that went missing and Necrobot used the time machine to go get them all, shoved them in pods so they could sleep off time sickness, which, believe it or not, will come up. And they've all, they all started to wake up at the end of, of More Than Meets the Eye. So Anode and Lug are among them, and they join a very dull orientation by Ultra Magnus. And, like, we, we meet some of the new crew, we, we see some minor updates on some of the old ones, um, everyone getting to know each other, and then the fortress is shaken by the impact of the bomb, ostensibly. So, as I said, like, Anode is, like, telling Magnus exactly how boring his presentation is, and is like, oh, maybe throw in some jokes, maybe cut to the point. Roller makes his introductions, Roller, of course, the red herring for Tarn, one of Optimus's old friends, he's now just very much a part of the crew. Just a big guy, doesn't really get much of a personality, but he's around. Swerve does some fake surveying to amuse himself. He and most of the other crew are wearing black Autobot badges to commemorate to commemorate Skids, who unfortunately did die at the end of season two. Anno does comment, you seem a little bit chipper for somebody who, a very good friend, died like yesterday which will come up. She is displeased to learn that Velocity is is going to be examining her for time sickness. There is clearly a past there. Rodimus has converted to Spectralism, which is Drift's religion of choice. Drift has always wanted him to convert in the on the alternate Lost Light where like a coffin containing Rodimus rocked up. That coffin was covered in spectralist colours, so like clearly this is a thing that will eventually happen no matter what. It's just the many adventures delayed it here. Uh, so he is repainted purple, blue, I guess it's just purples and blues, instead yeah, of his iconic very... red and orange and yellow. I get it, there are so many like red and orange Autobots, so like when you see them all together, it's like this is the same character. So from that standpoint, making him stand out it's cool i guess and i eventually got used to it but like it is so jarring to see him any other colors <laughs> it's also weird because drift isn't those colors like drift is no. like whites and reds he's not in spectralist colors so obviously well this i think he is but I, I think the idea is that all the different colors mean thing like colors mean something like he talks about earlier in the books they've talked about adjusting the hue of their eyes to like match the tone like the aura of the room man and the colors rodimus has chosen they are both about mourning a dead friend and also about intending murderous revenge (laughs) 
so yes which also matches because they're kind of more colors that are associated with decepticons and yes obviously this is a book <laughs> that is all about trying to bleed the edges between what exactly it means to be an autobot and what mm -hmm. exactly it means to be a decepticon even though the book is now very much sadly lacking in decepticons yeah and it's again it's, it's one of these like very cute little moments when no one else is around between rodimus and drift yeah, I do like that when the when the bomb goes off and you, you, you like the planet shakes or whatever, it makes Drift slip and like paint some of Rodimus's white face purple. I kind of wish that that stuck around for like multiple issues or something, and that was a thing everyone kept commenting on. But yeah, Megatron and Turn more content in these issues. I do want more content. Yes, Megatron and his old mentor, who was among the missing Terminus, uh, they hang out. Megatron is very evasive about catching him up about the war terminus is like oh look at you giving orders and we must remember terminus is from an era where megatron was very reluctant to take charge and was believed in pacifism and everything so he was like terminus was the one that was like nudging him towards basically becoming robot hitler it's, uh, <laughs> it is very it, it's one of my favorite kind of like unspoken i guess kind of things where the cast of this book increasingly becomes unaffiliated yes as it goes on because obviously anode and lug they were at Active during the war, but were unaffiliated. Think so. Then you've obviously got like Roller, Cyclonus. Oh, they're, they're from Caminus. Oh, yeah, from Caminus. Yeah, like anyone from one of the other planets is 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 considered neutral. Although Nautica does become an auto. Oh, they yeah, she converts once they join the ship. Yeah, but some of them are like, what's the point? What do any yeah. of these mean anymore? <laughs> but it is fun because it does add this additional perspectives that I feel not that they're missing from some of the other books, but it definitely does boil down to Autobots versus Decepticons and and like when this book started, Rodimus very much was like hey, you know, I've taken a temperature check on the room on Cybertron and feels like it's not a great time to be an Autobot and, like, they're letting the Decepticons mingle and there are all these neutrals. Fuck this. Autobots, let's go. And base you've commented before, Cyclonus is basically the only Decepticon on the ship. Um, and he's not even a Decepticon. Exactly. <laughs> and it is very much like Rodimus is clinging on to the old days. So I think that makes it very fun that by the end of it, he is arguably more, like it doesn't matter if you're an Autobot or Decepticon or whatever, than anyone else in all of the books. <laughs> that being the message of the whole run, I guess, you know, mission yeah, accomplished. because they're the ones who have let go of the war more than anyone, because yeah. they just went off on fun space adventures versus the other yeah. books which are so mired in dealing with the the war fallout and the history of Cybertron in a very different way to what this book is interested they all, in doing. They all kind of, like, slot into... They just swap the war for something else, whereas I feel this crew end up actually processing everything that happened and dealing with their own shit, whereas everyone else is like, well, um, don't have the war, let's move on to uh, a Council of Worlds or whatever. And there is still very much all the Decepticons hang out and all the Autobots are like, yeah, but they're a Decepticon kind of thing. And then the neutrals come in and go like, you guys need to be neutral. And then <laughs> yeah. eventually they all still hate Starscream no matter what happens. <laughs> Good old Starscream. Yeah, while Megatron and, and Terminus are hanging out, uh, Nightbeat and Rung burst through the ground. They were the ones that were like at ground central of the bomb going off. They were the ones that discovered that Necroworld is a perfect mold for Cybertron. And, is, and we already knew it was hollow, but they found that out just before the bomb went off. Turns out the bomb did go off, but it didn't seem to do anything. Like, no one is injured. It just made the planet shake a bit. And Rung obviously now learns that Skids is dead. 
is very, very sad about this. And this doesn't happen for a while, but I'm just going to say it here. There's a very bright light shining from his chest, and then he throws something up into his hands that seems to disturb him quite a lot. We will come back. Brainstorm rebuilds the teleporter that they refused to use previously so that they can go to Cybertron, get a ship, come chase the lost light, pick everyone back up. During testing, Drift ends up touching Anode by accident and experiences an apocalyptic vision. I do like that because he turned the teleporter into a fusion cannon and then turned the fusion cannon back into a teleporter, he says some aesthetic compromises have to be made. And it's like a... (laughs) They call it a den. It's kind of like a half a tunnel or like a very low to the ground tunnel that you have to crawl through. (laughs) It's a a blanket fort. Yeah, okay, yeah. I really love the visual when they all end up actually using it of everyone on all fours crawling through this fucking thing. Like Megatron on all fours crawling through a teleporter is pretty funny to me. So Anode and Lug like excuse themselves to this room and they like walk in on (laughs) Rodimus and Drift emerging from the tunnel. And it is all very wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And it's it, it, they're like, oh yeah, we were just testing it. And Lug is like, oh, it takes two, does it? And will Lug will later be like, you embarrass the pretty one in front of his conjuncts and Jura. Um, <laughs> so they think they're married. They think they've walked in on them canoodling. It's something we've commented on that like they seem to like be very touchy feely when no one's around, but in a just strictly just friends wink wink way. They like to wrestle when no one's around, <laughs> kind of thing. It's very funny. So this vision drift has had visions before. It hasn't really come up much. Partly because Drift was banished from the book for a long time and plans changed about his whole motivation where he was originally deceiving Rodimus because he needed to ensure he had a vision and he wanted he was acting on it but without that motivation the vision disappears so him having visions can feel a little bit out of the blue but it is a thing he does it is of like a, a red sky the lost light is there there's multiple of what they call symbol ships which the rabbit uh, the scavengers encountered before they're just like giant decepticon logos that are ships farmer is there he is leading a group of spark eaters against drift rodimus and grimlock and on the ground uh there are some texts that will be translated as prepare confront repel these are the words that grimlock wrote on the wall in his cell in the in the scavenger's ship they are words that are used by this like cabal group who are up to weird shit and wear the symbol that the mysterious symbol that keeps popping up so that is a vision that has been had i'm sure that won't all come to pass right at the end of the book how convenient that would be (laughs) i know right in amongst the people who are missing obviously some of them are decepticons because we've talked about how there are so few of them here are some new ones some of them aren't best pleased about this whole like the war is over thing megatron's an autobot and they're like, hmm, this isn't great. We're very outnumbered, so we should strike out at the strongest person in the room, which is Tailgate. Because if you remember, he has superpowers. Tailgate ends up believing that they've attacked Cyclonus, so goes after them, and in the process, he ends up injuring Anode. I do find it so funny that Tailgate is, like, the one they have to stab in prison to, to <laughs> not, you know, like... Um, and like Cyclones is scolding Tailgate for showing off his feats of strength like he's he lifts Roller up over his head who's like enormous and he's just like showing off all the time and Cyclonus is like hey you need to take it easy you need to rest more often they're starting to bicker after an instance where Tailgate does recharge he wakes up and finds Cyclonus has been badly beaten he assumes it was these Decepticons so he goes after them Anode is trying to calm him down and Tailgate sends her flying and, and like impales her on Spike without knowing it because they just walk off as if they haven't just, just killed someone Cyclonus ends up showing him 
like you know there was this giant battle at the end of, of of volume 10 and they haven't cleared it up so there are just bodies everywhere and cyclonus is like hey you killed all these people this section of the graveyard is all you tailgate so maybe calm down a bit and then tailgate faints but anode obviously needs medical attention lug goes and fetches help and uh, anode is brought back and treated at which point velocity yells at her about their past so this is where we learn that anode was a blacksmith, which is the equivalent of a midwife. When protoforms, newly born transformers, are trying to take shape, sometimes they struggle. So a blacksmith manipulates the like liquid metal, gets it into a shape that is viable, kind of thing. And sometimes when these fail, they turn the metal turns into one of these little metallic snowflakes, which are very valuable. Is there something about this? Because it's interesting. This is obviously though it's obviously a thing on Camerus, and there's no equivalent role on. Cybertron, it feels like. I, uh, I... Unclear. Very unclear. We know, yeah. Also, I like that Caminus is painted completely differently in this book than the other one, where they're like, oh, we've been starved of resources and on the edge of death for, like, hundreds of years. And then, like, every flashback in this book is like, Caminus is, like, we're really into the arts and, like, everyone's kind of chill and everyone's best friends. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's an interesting point of difference between the two <laughs> books. And obviously, I think Robert's obviously playing with a lot less camions than than the other books are at this yeah. point because he's only really got the the kind of the four yeah. or five of them that he for keeps him on. for him camus exists as a as a window to develop the characters he has whereas like the other book is physically going to camus and is talking to the government and the leadership of camus so he can be a little bit more fast and loose with it i guess i think they do exist elsewhere but maybe like she worked at a place called the lighthouse and i i gather this is like these are the best blacksmiths in in the whole universe, I don't know. But the reason Velocity is so mad at Anode is Anode ran away from the lighthouse and ostensibly stole some stuff, so Velocity wants her arrested. She will eventually say, no, I faked the theft and I ran away because she failed to save a life and she just could not handle it, so she, she ran. She is also hinting at a larger secret, which, yeah, this is, you know, while they're in the medical bay, Swerve, again, is is sort of like, it had come up that, like, they all seem a little bit too chipper. He says he's starting to feel again. It will be revealed a lot of them are taking mood suppressants, like little injections to stop feeling grief temporarily, which is why they seem a little bit upbeat. Sounds healthy. It does sound very healthy for this book full of very healthy (laughs) Transformers. Anode's first big thing to reveal she comes to realize nobody but her can see lug because lug actually died at the beginning when the necrobot saved them both necrobot grabbed anode and anode was like reaching out for lug but then we didn't see what happened and you know astute readers realize that like nobody but anode has directly acknowledged lug 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 speaks and sometimes the dialogue is written in a way where it seems like someone is responding to lug but it's always lug has said something like a really obvious question that somebody would answer even without prompting kind of thing <laughs> like saying what everyone's thinking kind of thing and yeah one of those things that you can that the these kind of mediums works really well at kind yeah. of like obfuscating because obviously you have that the fact that the first time that they were uh when the when the 
Necrobot was going to bring them through time, you get the kind of cliffhanger of like, oh my god, is she going to make it? And then the next time you see them, they're like, they've both made it through the the time portal or whatever, like together. Mm-hmm. But it's there's enough wiggle room there and a very like Scrubsian or a very like <laughs> yeah. all the, all those times that the people big Brendan play Fraser with, episode, yeah, exactly <laughs> where people play with perception around like let's trick you into thinking that something yeah. uh, uh, we know something has happened, but do you actually know what the thing that's happened is? Yeah. And I think smart readers picked up on this almost immediately but like it, it's still effective when when it's deployed and like you know like lug went and got medical attention for anode but it turns out one of the doctors just happened to fucking walk past anode so if if they hadn't anode would have just died there and then at tailgate's hands which is super fucked up because tailgate never ever acknowledges any of that it is powerful and like anode noticed that lug keeps going back to the monument of the missing and she eventually reads it and sees that Anode's name is on it, which is why Necrobot went and got her. Lug's name is not on it. So Lug isn't missing, Lug is dead. And they had mentioned one of the symptoms of time sickness is hallucinations. Like, they lay out, you know, you may experience this, 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 and this. So Anode has been hallucinating Lug since waking up. Pretty sad, but don't worry about it, <laughs> because... The Necrobot, if you remember, had figured out a way how to convert people's sparks into those flowers yes or, or like a, a piece of their spark and yes apparently by taking this metal snowflake super rare remember can't just do this all the time and lugs spark flower anode through very <laughs> questionable surgery is able to basically rebirth lug i mean i would say revive but they make her a whole new body and then just put her spark into it and like her memories transfer and i think it's up to the point of death so they'd been bickering a little bit it almost doesn't work it's a whole thing but they are yeah i mean this is i mean what this is revealed to be only the second time that she's ever done this because the first time (laughs) she did it she accidentally killed the protoform so because she had been bragging in her time at the lighthouse for being incredibly good at this she's like all talk no act like like she knows the theory but like the first time she got hands on her patient died on the table essentially so she was like fuck that and, and they, then... they argue a bit about whether it's like you wanted to punish yourself versus like you couldn't hack it versus whatever else that goes around someone's head in those situations yeah was this a selfish act or was this an altruistic act is kind yeah. of like that blurred line of like you could have recovered and been better at this but you yeah. obviously decided to take a, a, the coward's yeah. way out is is nautica's perspective on this yeah nautica also when at first it seems they've come to grips with the fact actually Lug's dead. They talk about the mood suppressants. Anode won't take one and doesn't want to talk about Lug. Nautica relates, having just lost skids, and this is where Nautica is basically confirming that there was a romantic feeling for skids, and this whole concept of bringing Lug back from the dead maybe puts an idea in Nautica's head. <laughs> all this drama makes them realise they didn't properly check all of the pods in, in the wake-up room. So Swerve and Whirl go to do so. They open a very big one where there are many warnings not to open it, and emerging from it is none other than Whirl's old nemesis, Killmaster, who has the one been with the, wand. the one with the wand, who has been referred to many times. I have always wondered if it would have been funnier to simply never ever ever reveal Killmaster and just keep talking about him. But out he comes. He is extremely large. He is wielding a wand, which makes him quite funny. Less funny is that when he zaps people with the wand, they vanish. So for a hot minute, it seems like Swerve and Ten are just gone. Obviously, they will be restored soon. But yeah, Whirl is just kind of like bored and 
<laughs> he's very irritated by Swerve. Like, he says, hurry up before I give in to urges I've been suppressing since the day we met. Whirl admits he's never, ever beaten him. Assumed he was dead. Killmaster does acknowledge that Whirl is his nemesis, so it's not like... We've had stuff in this book before where people are just, like, making shit up. Like, Swerve's parasocial relationship with, with Blur. You know, people just imagining things and, and, and all of that. And, like, Whirl is obviously pretty unhinged, so there was definitely a world where, like, Killmaster doesn't even know who he is and Whirl's just talking a big game. But no, he does does acknowledge he's his nemesis, but Whirl had talked big about beating him before and he has never beaten him. So he's like, go get Cyclonus, my new best friend who used to want to kill me all the time. And Cyclonus does arrive very dead. (laughs) Um, He is missing an arm. He is just covered in damage. It's like, oh, finally, the cavalry's here, and the cavalry is in, like, worse shape than the people who were who were there in the first place. Although still is incredibly helpful in this yeah. entire action sequence, which Hell I yeah. think really does reinforce just how much of a kind of a force to be reckoned with Cyclonus is. Yeah. I always like when they remind you of that, because, like, so much of Cyclonus's character is just standing stoically, or, like, you know, his big thing is this romance with Tailgate and how he's so emotionally stunted and, like, you know, he's the big guy who's actually really soft, it turns out. But then every now and then they do remind you, he's, like, not a peerless fighter, but, like, you know, right up there on the list. Like, he can Probably handle like most in, people. <laughs> in the top five of Probably. Movies, like, if you're gonna go, like, it's Megatron, it's... I might stop there. I might say Megatron Cyclonus. I know Ultra Magnus is, you know, in the armor especially, is is or only in the armor. But yeah, I think he's meant to be right, right up there. Um, but I mean, you've also got our good friend who is still aboard the Lost Light, and <laughs> we will discuss more of the Mutineer trilogy. <sighs> I try not to acknowledge Thunderclash. Yeah, Thunderclash has got to be top five, even though he didn't <sighs> do that many missions with them. Whatever. Yes, as you say, even with only one arm, he manages to cut Killmaster's hand off the one holding the wand he throws it to whirl and he's like use it on him and that does work they zap him away whirl says the best part was when you said zap him just, just good stuff and then cyclonus is like you know he's trying to be all like glib and everything and flippant and cyclonus is like i like you better when you're serious and he's like <sighs> and then he actually is serious so like they've they've had a, an actual breakthrough these two they end up having a little heart to heart and cyclonus reveals that all this damage he keeps rocking up with is from Tailgate himself. He has fits in his sleep, and because of his superpowers, he is, like, absolutely wrecking Cyclonus, who is, like, if I take it, he won't just start, like, rampaging around or, like, killing himself or whatever. So Cyclonus has just basically been getting beaten half to death by his boyfriend in his sleep, which is heavy shit. And they've reversed the self-heart. Like, you said early on, like, it's actually kind of uncomfortable when, like, Cyclonus, before he ends up, falling in love with Tailgate is like kicking him and st- like like beating him up a bit and it's and Tailgate is like desperate to be his friend or more and it was a little bit uncomfortable. They've reversed the roles now. Well Tailgate is is hard, is domestically abusing Cyclonus, although he doesn't know he's doing it. Yeah. But World does go to Tailgate and very sternly tells him off. We don't see the conversation, we see the start of it. So that all of that plays out in tandem with the meat of this book. The Rod Squad head to Cybertron and while they're in the right location, they are horrified to find themselves in that functionless universe that Rewind experienced. The world where, without Megatron, the Functionless Council gained even greater power. Hardline functionalism. They deem your alt mode to be obsolete. You are killed. Ruled by religion. Ruled by, you know, all this stuff. It's a smaller version of the Rod Squad. Uh, it is Rodimus, Megatron, Drift, Ratchet, Chrome Dome, Rewind, Roller, 
Terminus and Minimus Ambus without the Ultra Magnusar, which is a choice. <laughs> um, and Rodimus actually leaves Cyclonus in charge of everyone back home. So, like, again, huge growth when he was reluctantly let aboard and still treated like a Decepticon and he's now, like, left in charge. Admittedly, not that many major characters left to give the role to instead, but still nice. Brainstorm had triple-checked everything three times. That's nine checks. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, Megatron... Terminus, when they get there, like, to Cybertron, it's like, oh, cool, big splash page, here they all are. Terminus is like, oh my god, it's so beautiful. And Megatron's like, oh, you fool. I guess to you, who's been in the mines, even a ruined city is beautiful. But then that's when the reveal happens, that it is the full, thriving, populated city not the completely destroyed one that they expect to come to. They are, of course, immediately arrested by the Council, who believe that they are part of the Resistance, the, the is it the Anti-Vocationalist League, the AVL? Yes. yes. Kind of aren't that useful. Eh, uh, shitty. <laughs> like, I think that's the whole, the whole kind of amusing thing, is part of what is happening in this is the Functionalist universe is keeping all the good fighters for themselves mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, which I guess has parallels to kind of the real world in terms of if there were to be a civil war, the most most likely <laughs> people who were like willing to fight or already armed would naturally side with. Are we saying that people who are like gun nuts and militaristic and everything naturally lead right? Uh, lean right saying, a little bit more. I'm not saying, yeah, I'm not saying all. I'm not saying all of them. No, obviously there but... is a, a, a there are enough people who I feel like get out of the military and get radicalized by their time in the military. But there is sure. definitely a. I would also say, I'm almost say people who don't go into the military. Yes, people almost... with a military fetish who want to cosplay as soldiers and walk around with eight guns in like Subway or Target or whatever. Yeah, yeah. there is definitely some of that, and I think there's also a little bit of a commentary that sometimes. The left who talk about revolution are pretty namby-pamby, candy-ass, ineffectual. You know, them's the breaks, unfortunately. Yeah, it, 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 it's fun reading how much depth there is to this critique in a book which will end with a character punching the moon. <laughs> oh, glorious <laughs> fucking moment. Yeah, they destroy the teleporter, so they're stranded here, they're arrested. Luckily, that very ineffectual resistance group do attack... They don't make a very good job of it, but like in the chaos, they are able to fight their way free and escape. So this group of the council are led by 12 of 12. He has, as you said, some of the heavies with him. As you may recall, the key council, they're 1 of 12, 2 of 12, etc. They all look broadly similar. They all have basically Imperator heads, which, you know, calls into question this whole, like, religious practice. If it's a punishment, why do your most holy of holy have it? But they do have, like, capes, and they float, and they're a little bit more grand. They have some members of the AVL on leashes, and they have no eyes, and the initial assumption is that they've, they're have they about to have their camera eyes fitted. It will later come out that they had the, eye, the camera eyes fitted, and they ripped them out themselves <laughs> so that they couldn't be, like, tools of the state kind of thing. Tools of their own oppressors kind of thing. Rodimus does get them to confirm the date because the you know obviously the immediate feeling is oh we've traveled back in time again we're back in original functionalist times but no it is the present it is cybertron but they are in a world where it's a different universe basically minimus points out that they have like never been further away from their goal um, and they would actually probably be closer to achieving it if they had just simply never left which feels a little bit like james roberts acknowledging hey you know that quest they set out on <laughs> Maybe we should make some steps towards actually achieving it. Which did start to creep in when Megatron came aboard. Like, hey, let's get serious about this. And we'll get... Like, like, the remaining people on the Lost Light are trying to actually achieve the goal. And no spoilers, but, you know, the goal is going to be (laughs) brought to the fore 
but it, it does feel a little bit like it's like okay it's go time we need to actually be seriously engaging with the it is just funny that the first 12 issues of this book are kind of devoted to wrapping up not i wouldn't even say if it's a, it's a cliffhanger from the megatron like let's go kill megatron arc it's just a fun little side universe to, uh, to kind of like give some closure to that in some ways yeah. And then the other part of it is they obviously need to conclude what happened with the mutineers after they ended up on the ship. And so neither of those two things are strictly to do with <laughs> what's going on. Obviously, we will find out that like part of what's going on in the Functionist Universe kind of is a huge key to unlocking the end game of the yeah. entire series. But yeah. you don't know that when you're reading it. You think it's part of another substrata of mystery, which is just based around the last time we saw the Functionist Universe, we obviously ended with that cliffhanger, which was basically we figured out what rung does yes and they will go on television and broad well you know i call it television they will broadcast to all of cybertron we're going to reveal what the useless one does and i love that they draw rung with such a scowl like as this like political prisoner and he just looks like the ultimate badass when he's like (laughs) just the pathetic one yeah our group initially agreed to go quietly which just seems like such a terrible plan like oh we'll just go talk to him it's like you're stranded here like why are you taking any risks whatsoever of being like thrown in prison Megatron will eventually sigh and rip his restraints open, like the ca- the classic reveal of he's here by his own will and he could have broken out at any time. He doesn't actually fight, like he is sticking to his pacifism despite his very violent murdering of the DJD at the end of the previous season. But he does, you know, what he did there. He, he, he directs traffic very effectively, he frees other people, blah blah blah. Terminus ends up complimenting him, like, oh hey, you like... You won the fight without throwing a punch. Starting to see, like, the power of Megatron, basically, (laughs) beyond the physical power. They are taken in by Nine of Twelve, who is a member of the Council who has defected and is now, like, offering Sanctuary. They successfully make uh, contact with Brainstorm, who's going to work in a way to get them home. Brainstorm ends up theorising, because you're in the right location and we haven't travelled in time, the only logical explanation is... All of us have shifted to another universe. And the Geobomb, when it went off, it didn't fail. It just didn't quite do what they wanted. It shifted the whole of the Necro world to another universe. And then when they teleported from the Necro world to Cybertron in that universe, they went to that universe's Cybertron. He is extremely excited <laughs> to have discovered parallel universes, as is Nightbeat. And Rodimus is extremely excited to be able to go home. There's a lot of squealing and flying around the room. Nightbeat drives around the walls because he turns into a car. It's It's... a fantastic panel. We haven't actually talked much about the art on this one, but the new artist on this series is is Jack Lawrence, who's taken over for Alex Milne for the most part. I think Milne will be back on occasion, but very much The Lost Light is drawn by Mm -hmm. Jack Lawrence from this point onwards, who has a similar but slightly different style. Where It's It's more colourful. It's more colourful, but obviously Joanna LaFuente is still doing the colours of the book. It feels more anime-inspired and probably feels more in line with or manga I should say if we're talking about like static image but it definitely feels there's there's more color pop there's more distinction between stuff uh, uh, probably a little bit less detail as well in in some of the drawings like not not in a bad way whatsoever it's just I think they're like Milne was again a little bit dour on the colors it's more cartoony it's more I I like it personally there are times where the classic more than meets the eye style like when you've got all those speech bubbles and you've got like light coloured backgrounds and so many of the bots have got white in their colour scheme and then they've got like muted colour tones themselves. It can feel a little bit washed out and I feel this pops a little bit more and it's a little bit more like dynamic. 
Um, which probably makes sense because I think it, I would say it's a slightly more actiony book than More Than Meets the Eye was. Not. That I mean, yeah. When it, when this is when this is your first arc, which is basically kind of three action sequences happening in parallel for a lot of in a lot of ways, mm. it is definitely more action-packed um but yeah, yeah the, the, this particular panel which is brainstorm kind of like you're making a character who has no mouth look gleeful and mm. does it like with ease and then the background you've got night beat like driving around the room it is a lot of fun i do wish they kind of delved into a little bit more around the fact that brainstorm made this universe like this is not <laughs> this is not a this is not multiverse theory where like they could jump between a number of worlds this is a world explicitly that stems from actions that brainstorm took yes uh, even though he didn't well he did go through with it and then they stopped him but you know enough of it took hold that it exists as a parallel reality as you said i actually think one of the major artistic achievements across multiple artists in this line of books is how effectively they can make characters with no mouth, with one eye, with solid eyes, with no pupils, how much emotion they can get out of so many of them. They can look sad, they can look happy, everything in between, and I think a lot of the time it's actually really effective. So yeah, 9 of 12, our, our, our good counsellor, who now runs like a resistance city, he explains a bunch of stuff to them. Basically there are five sacred cities, if the ruler of one of them allows it, you can have sanctuary. Coincidentally, Nine is is the counsellor of one of these cities. He says by their own logic, Primus gave them these roles and only Primus can take them away. That becomes a very funny line. Um, <laughs> he taught them how to block the signal that makes their heads go boom, because you may be wondering, why don't they just kill all the resistance? He fills them in on like events between like killing Megatron and today. As I said at the beginning, the council sold... Well, they, they claim they sold the moon. It turns out they actually didn't. But they, as I said, they banned all space travel to and from. They've made them fearful of the rest of the universe. No matter how bad things are here, we're keeping you safe from these horrible aliens kind of thing. They executed the Senate after finding out about constructing cold. But Nine then defected at this only at this point. So he was hardcore into all of this. The council started to do constructing cold themselves. And he was like, you fucking hypocrites. So he left. Six of twelve is the de facto leader of the council. He is the one that goes on TV and is like, I'm going to tell you what Rung turns into. He holds the Matrix, which is the fake Matrix. <sighs> Fucking fake Matrix. Um, <laughs> he incorporates it into his damn head. So he has like the Matrix as his head. And he will later be able to like fire a Matrix beam from it and stuff. It's pretty badass. He believes that Primus speaks only to him. Primus is God and he believes Primus is telling him, you need to make ready for war. And yeah, they reveal Rung turns into a big drill, and Vector Sigma, which is the god computer of Cybertron, again, we're getting into some... Yeah, this is this is probably the most lorry this book gets, because this is... <laughs> yeah. uh, they're able to... Like, I feel like all the other flashbacks that this book does, not that this is a flashback, but all the, all the flashbacks that, that Roberts has done so far have been in a pre-war time and he's kind of avoided a lot of the law nonsense that is yeah. central to the main run of transformers and is he, doing he, a lot of his own stuff whereas yeah. this is very firmly in the world of like vector sigma is prime transformers law <laughs> in a lot of ways it is a big supercomputer that like gives off pulses that birth when we talk about natural birth the hotspots vector sigma gives out pulses that make 
the hotspots ignite and make natural Transformers be born, as it were. The Senate locked Vector Sigma in a chamber that was, like, unbreakable, they couldn't get into it, therefore the population started to decline, and that's, you know, spark splicing, constructing cold, all of this stuff. They believe only Rung can breach the chamber and restore the population. Turns out they all turn into a key. <laughs> so I, I, I speculated previously, they look so strange, it's not clear what they would turn into. I immediately remembered while I was saying it, Oh, they do turn into something. They turn into a key together, but they can't do it without nine. Yes, they um, turn into the key to Vector Sigma, which is like old, like G one cartoon yeah. lore. Like they have to find the key to Vector Sigma. I think it's like a whole, yeah. whole ass <laughs> arc in the cartoon series. But like yeah. late on in the run, it's like something that comes up recurrently. But obviously, this is the whole reason why they think that they are important to the world, mm-hmm. to the universe, is that they turn into this key, and this is the only way that you can unlock Vector Sigma. Yeah, I'm yeah, sure I mean, nothing. I'm sure nothing's going to happen that's going to rock their sense of their own functionalism. <laughs> People are dubious about this claim about Rung, given the size of him. They reveal him in in drilled form, and he's way bigger than Rung is. And Ratchet can tell even via broadcast that his joints are under enormous stress. They come to believe he's been turned into this thing against his will, and like mass displaced to be made larger. All of this stuff. So they're a bit suspicious. No time for suspicions, though, because the allegedly sold moon, Luna 2, it reappears, and it turns out the council turned it into a giant harvester, and it begins attacking the city. So we have, like, an Independence Day-esque battle sequence that goes on for ages with, like, the moon is attacking the city, and, like, all hands on deck. The council believed the moon was useless because moons control tides and there are no oceans on Cybertron anymore. So they're like, this thing doesn't do anything, therefore it's useless. So they turned it into a mining vessel to gather resources from the rest of the universe for their plans. This is why they allowed the Resistance to gather in this one city, so they could get them all at once. And uh, Rodimus and Megatron argue about what's the bigger priority, saving this alternate Cybertron or returning home because the moon has a teleporter. So it's like, we need to help everyone versus we need to get the fuck out of here. (laughs) So they just agree to launch their own separate missions. Rodimus is suspicious that Megatron is doing anything he can to delay returning to the mission, because when they achieve the mission, Megatron will face trial at the hands of the Knights of Cybertron and will probably be sentenced to death. Megatron has been taking great interest in the resistance of this planet, is not best pleased about the shape of them do not have much in the way of resources or fighting prowess but yeah so rodimus's team head off to the vector sigma chamber they rescue rung they steal the council's ship and rung reveals his real truth um so when they get there rung is in the corner has not been used and yet the council have entered the chamber so we know already there's something up there Ratchet gets to work on turning him back into himself. Rodimus attacks 6 of 12, gets Matrix lasered. He's like, I've carried the Matrix, that ain't the Matrix. So yeah, they are they are false. <laughs> Rung ends up calling them useless because they're in the chamber without the key. They do confess that they figured out how to get in there without Rung. Rung doesn't turn into a drill, um, so they're all just full of shit. And while Rung tells the group in this universe what he really does. Back in the main universe, our Rung is talking to Nightbeat about his vomiting issue (laughs) earlier. So we kind of get the reveal playing out in two universes at once. He produces photon crystals, which are used for cold construction. They are what Nova Prime used to to do constructing cold. They, They hold... You can use a bit of the Matrix and a photon crystal, and you can just sort of 
split one spark into two or many. I don't actually fully understand it, but the, the artificial birthing they do, and then they put you into a prefab body instead of you organically grow from this liquid metal and someone like Anode helps you take shape if needed. Instead, this is like yeah. made to order as <laughs> a separate part of it. But. Yeah, but it, it's interesting because obviously this kind of both does a good thing for the Functionist Council and also kind of completely destroys their central premise, which is mm-hmm. Rung isn't useless, which is obviously a good thing for them because the whole the whole thing with Rung is like all hail the useless one because he doesn't do anything. So what does this mean for a council, which is based around like what function... Um, Every shape serves a purpose. Yes. Yeah. But the thing is, they've now discovered the shape that he actually services is to create... Cybertronians in a constructed cold fashion. Yes. He takes this as 6 of 12. They're they're basically their leader. He thinks Rung is evidence that Primus approves of constructing cold because the crystals occur naturally. It should also be said, Rung only does this when he is subjected to extreme psychological trauma, such as being tortured for 2 million years in the functionalist universe, or the death of Skids in our universe. So he's not seemingly cognizantly aware he can do this and he does talk about how he doesn't really remember his earliest days he's very very old and throughout the books there's been talk of something called information creep which i think it's just a a species that lives this long your memories start to get a little bit fucked it's kind of like thor in marvel where he's thousands of years old so his they explain away some of him not remembering some flashback stuff because he's so old, he's, his memories have just, just gone in some places. It should also be noted in Drift's vision, the apocalyptic vision, he said it was raining, but it didn't look like rain. He now realises it was these crystals. So again, surely this will all pay off. Yeah, and as you said, they've been, they've been hoarding all the like more combat-ready bots. They are using this harvested material to make more action-ready bots. They are using con- cold construction. They are building an army to go global, uh, to go universal. Exactly what Nova did in the distant past that they seem to not approve of. They're doing it. And this is, as we said at the top, this is removing Re- Rewind's justification of why he, you know, he wanted to spare the rest of the universe, even if it meant Cybertron was worse. Turns out, you give them long enough, they'll do it too. Rung is not pleased about their plan to use the teleporter to go home, because he wants to destroy the moon to save Cybertron. And is is willing to actually fight Rodimus to protect, you know, he's like, you're going to have to go through me. (laughs) And Rodimus just fucking knocks him out. And then I was like, oh, wow, why did I do that? Feels genuinely bad. And is like, wow, this is all really getting to us, isn't it? Megatron has been defending the city while they've been doing this. As I said, he's frustrated by the lack of firepower, but he is able to do what he can to coordinate a nice, smart strategy. Minimus Ambus is convinced, hey, I don't think you're trying to put anything off i think you're actually genuinely trying to atone which he genuinely appreciates roller is the same he's like you remind me of orion pax which megatron calls the highest possible compliment orion pax being optimus prime and roller is you know you may wonder where is optimus in this universe <laughs> megatron's like he must be dead because if he were alive he surely would have joined the resistance and made them way more effective than they are and roller is like well i've been trying to call him on this phone i'm holding and he hasn't been answering why don't you take the phone? <laughs> yeah, either this means he's dead or he's out of range of, yes. of the signal. And yes. I think you can tell which one it's going to turn out <laughs> that he is. Yeah. Terminus, Megatron's mentor, tells him, dude, you should just stay here and lead this resistance. 
And Megatron says, I've been putting myself first for too long. Like, you know, he always thinks of his own self-survival. He's always plotting to, to save his own bacon kind of thing and put himself on top. Terminus is like, but in this instance, it's not about you. It's about all of these people. He says, you're not accountable to them. You're accountable to your conscience. Them being Rodimus, etc. And Megatron says, they are my conscience. So Rodimus, Magnus especially, um, I think, yeah. They are the little voices in his head that tell him how to be good. Even though, you know, it's been a journey and we know that he did it on his own, he still looks to them as his role models, which is very cute. Brainstorm has, meanwhile, figured out how to use Killmaster's wand. It teleports people, so he's like, hmm, if I fuck around with it in a certain way, I can get us all back to the main universe, but first, you're all going to need to get back to Necroworld ASAP so I can do this. Their own allies, the defense, end up shooting them down because they are in the enemy's flagship. So they're no longer able to get to the moon, it seems. And then Rung <laughs> uses the the ability to grow that they inflicted on him to grow absolutely fucking colossal. And then he punches the fucking moon. <laughs> in one of the best panels of the entire comic book, which obviously has the, the text, is the title issue. The of title, it, yeah is uh, This Machine Kills Fascists, which mm-hmm. is just wonderful. Uh, if you couldn't tell that this book was uh, a little bit political, I think this is a moment where you where you would fully understand that. I'm very intrigued to hear like casual readers' response to this at the time, because obviously <laughs> Transformers is a series which is obviously dealing in politics, and, and mm. Roberts has obviously been injecting this in for, for quite a while, but I just can't imagine being... As there are a, a number of people who read comic books, who I, I think naturally people who, who are into art lean left, but there are always people in those groups who who lean right, as there is in any kind of circumstance. There's always going to be political mm-hmm. variances, but I think just by nature of the fact that most artists lean left, most people who absorb art in a way that feels central to their person naturally lean left as well. Mm-hmm. And so what I have discovered or what I seem to find is people who are really, really, really into licensed work, work which is based around kind of just keeping the wheel spinning on nostalgia and and just... Keep politics out of my thing. Yes, keep politics out of my thing. This was never political back in the 80s, even though... <laughs> it always Transform- is. It's Every always, time. Transformers has always been political, even if you have to kind of, like, take a step outside it and go, like... I mean, just by virtue of what Ronald Reagan did to, like, advertising in the 80s mean that Transformers is inherently a political piece of artwork because mm. it is an advert disguising itself as a narrative medium. Or a narrative show. When uh, did the X Men go woke, man? <laughs> back when Kitty Pride was was sucking cake off of people's fingers, uh, in... <laughs> just gal pals, just yeah. just rocket friends. Harley and Poison Ivy, just friends. But yeah, I, I, I just I would love to see the reaction to this because I have to imagine I don't think there are going to be people who admit to this, or if they are, they're not gonna like they're going to come up with other reasons for it, and they tend to come in ways that we see as dog whistles, like there are Mary Sue, as we've already mentioned mm. on this on this episode but i can only imagine there were a, there's a group of people in this who are reading this issue with words like fascism and and the such being thrown around who are like not that they haven't probably thrown their toys at the pram mm-hmm. before this point in the book but like in 2016 or 2017 i think when these issues are coming out the word fascist is probably an awful lot more potent 
and a lot more of a critique of a certain person. Fascists don't like being called fascists. I don't know if you know that. Well, it's the same thing as like people who <laughs> they don't like various isms. They don't yeah. like being called. Oh, out. I'm racist. Oh, I'm this. Like, yeah, probably. <laughs> like, I mean, but that's the thing is, I th- again, with that's we're getting into the discussion of people view it as black and white, and yes. being called racist as a de facto moral castigation against you when it's like you can be racist in like really subtle ways that aren't yep. that are harmful but are not a kind you, of a, a smear on your person yeah. for forever you can be a victim of society and like institutionalized racism and, and and sexism and anything else and not even know it you can be a broadly you talk the talk of good values but then some of your behaviors and some of your like edgier beliefs without you thinking it infringe on being various isms most people's parents let's be real (laughs) you know it's a difficult topic like so much of it is is entangled in decades and centuries of history and you don't even know that it's stuff like you you hear ostensibly lib leaning parents and middle-aged people being like i don't care if you're black white purple green it's like you're comparing being black with being purple like you know you're you're comparing a real thing to a completely ridiculous like you're you're trying to get to a humanist point which kind of disregards the differences that people have yeah. whereas we need to live in a world where everyone is equal equal in spite of their differences yeah. and like saying stuff like i don't see color it's like you probably should see color like yeah but more in the, from the angle of like acknowledging their struggle and their pain and stuff and or even just acknowledging that they would have a different perspective yeah, on yeah, yeah, so yeah. many different things in the world and in life and so yeah. that's what people are fighting for but we got to this point i feel in in the 90s and the 2000s where it's like no 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 we're going to ignore it we're going to battle the isms by ignoring it and that mm-hmm. got to a, a lot of people were just like oh I'm fine with ignoring it, yeah. and now we. And now you point. you get a point where like the easiest way to win points is being like, oh yeah, all these leftists telling you you're racist. You're not racist, are you? And like, no, no, not at all. Like they're they're almost trying to use like some of the language of the left against them, and it's yeah, it's all fucked. Uh, but this machine literally kills fascists. Yes, this machine literally kills fascists. I love how much this freaks Rodimus out. Like the the drawing of his fa- like wide eyed, wide mouth, like bloody hell, he just punched the moon kind of thing. I think it's wonderful. Obviously, this puts Rung in extreme amounts of pain, which is why everyone doesn't just grow large and and just conquer the universe. And he does eventually drop dead. Remember, this is an alternate universe Rung. Our Rung is still fine. Back on back on Necro World. He's just got a eating disorder or whatever. <laughs> He's just throwing up crystals, and he doesn't know why. I do find it interesting. A member of the Resistance is bummed out when Rung grows big, and he's like, "Ah, oh, the point of him was he's useless, and now he's this giant, like moon punching, like almost religious figure." And he's like, "This sort of like ruins him for me." Megatron is like, "The opposite of functionalism isn't not having a use; it is freedom of choice." Rung can choose to be a giant moon punching. <laughs> yeah, Rung doesn't know his purpose, so he got to be a therapist, he got to be a moon punching giant warrior. He did briefly get to be a drill, uh, which also <laughs> wasn't his purpose and yeah. was assigned to him or was forced upon him. But yeah, I mean, it, 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 that's what Megatron is fighting for. And I think I do like this kind of through line through this arc where Megatron becomes not re radicalized, but I do think this is a really nice conclusion to. A form of his arc, which mm-hmm. is basically, oh, I get to go again. Yes, in this universe, it is like, returning to the point of his truest, like purest beliefs, but with his lived experience and his mistakes 
and getting a, re a redo and that is what will happen like they realize they can teleport the entire moon inside of the necro world so once run goes down and everything they're like well there's no one stopping us going to the moon now so they do go to the moon and, and everything in the chaos they are all split up megatron swears he's one minute behind them rodimus trusts him megatron ends up being left behind due to i'm gonna call it confusion but it's very much not confusion he ends up staying in the functionalist universe even though they've stopped the moon and everything the council still exists there is still a resistance that needs leading and he even ends up talking to orion pax on the phone at the end terminus lies <laughs> straight yep. up terminus is told oh hey we're teleporting from a different place than we told you make sure you tell megatron which place we're going to he's like yep i'll tell him and then he does not tell him <laughs> Because he's, again, being like, you should fucking stay. Yeah, he gets the wrong point. And obviously, the whole point is, we know that, ultimately, if Megatron stays in, in our universe, he will die. His fate is death, yes. Really. Like, even though he will get judged by the Knights of Cybertron, maybe the Knights of Cybertron will be good to him, but I do think that, fundamentally, it's whatever. Su it's such an interesting dilemma, because, like... He did do all this stuff, and no matter how much he regrets it, how much he owns it, how much he's like, I want to be a force for change, there is a threshold of bad stuff where I personally believe you no longer deserve forgiveness. That's for everyone to decide. I think and, there are things so extreme where I'm like, I don't care if you atone, you're a fucked up individual. <laughs> and that is something that I think a lot of people do have issues with, with this particular part of Roberts' run, take mm -hmm. issue with, but they're just like, you cannot atone. I... Yeah. Base Hitler. Like, I think they feel Roberts is saying, ah, Megatron's okay. I don't think he's ever saying that. I think he's simply exploring this giant ethical dilemma. And people have just come down on the side of, oh, so Roberts is saying you should, like, hand wave everything Megatron did and love Megatron. I don't think he's ever saying that, no. personally. I think it's very similar to the discourse we're seeing at the moment with Oppenheimer, where <laughs> yeah. people are coming out of that movie and going like, well, the movie doesn't come out and say that bombs and war are bad, so therefore I think <laughs> this movie is pro-Oppenheimer. And it's like, this is a movie which includes a sequence in which they have just bombed Japan and there is a storming, like, stampede of applause that ends with various people, like, throwing up and faces being melted off. The subtext is there. Nolan, the creator, views the thing as bad, but and... it's not coming out there with a sign that says, like... Because, again, like, the, the bad version of that movie is we have Japanese characters who are, like, going about their life and then the bomb comes down and we get this maudlin, like... Torture oh, porn. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and isn't and... that... So I haven't seen Oppenheimer yet, but, like, there is a scene where they say, oh, don't bomb this place because my wife and I go vacationing there don't they yes there like is that. It, yeah. like, that was a piece of research from the actor where like they are like listing the, there's 12 places in japan that we could bomb well 11 because my wife and i honeymooned here and it's a place of great cultural importance and it's genuinely like, one of the most horrifying things yeah like i don't know how much more explicit you want it to be than something like that like uh, do you genuinely want all your art to come with subtitles that say this is our message because if you do art probably isn't for you but yeah like him staying here he is no longer in your universe. He is in no way a problem. Functionally, he is dead to your universe. He is doing tremendous good, ostensibly. He is being his own opposite in another universe, and he's dealt with. Is that fine? Or is he, yeah, is he escaping his punishment and getting off kind of scot-free and getting to live a life where he is a venerated, celebrated hero? And it's really interesting. Like, he says, if I stayed behind, if I went back on my word... I wouldn't be the person you think I am. And the person you think I am is the person I want to be. So Terminus just takes the choice out of his hands and just, <laughs> just 
tough. You're going to be the leader now. Yep. It's sad because this is... Megatron's kind out. Of, Megatron's out. Like, this is, I this was is... so bummed out the first read when he left because, again, I don't think enjoying the character and how he's written is me saying, if this were real, I would side with Hitler. <laughs> like, not at all. But as a character in this book, I thought he was tremendously well written and unlocked a lot of really cool avenues and had a really nice dynamic with everyone. And when he was taken out, I was like, gutted. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of, I'm not going to say that the 35 issues that we have with Megatron are the best concentrated part of this, but he's definitely the best through line, I think, through the entire book. I think more is... good issues contain Megatron than don't. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing, is like the issues in the second half of More Than Meets the Eye that don't have Megatron, I think, are the, the weaker parts of those mm. those stories. Mm. And Or like he's in them, but like he only appears at the very end kind of thing. Yeah. Like those ones tend to be a bit weaker too, but... And that's the thing is that we now reach this point where I don't think the rest of Lost Light is bad because it has a fire lit under its arse in terms of it needs to end and we have been doing things that were set up before Megatron and there's still enough characters who you love and all the rest of it but it definitely does feel like the thematic core of what Roberts has been writing Mm-hmm. Since he, since the very start of his run in IDW with the the chaos theory issues, that has kind of now been done. And yeah. whether or not we get like a little capper before the end of the book it would be would be spoiling where this goes. <laughs> but I do think fundamentally this is a version of the ending that you kind of have to be all right with. But yeah. it does it does take some of that like like I think we're gonna we spent a good chunk of time discussing these first like six issues, and yeah. not that these next six aren't gonna be like stuff to stuff to talk about but it it definitely is we're then moving into like this is cool and fun on a on like a technical level or on a like look at what they're doing with the medium as opposed to boy there is some like real weighty themes going on here i don't think the mutineers trilogy has anything close to the the political or the philosophy that is in any of the stuff that deals with megatron and the functionless universe and and the politics of cybertron no You'll see Megatron again. But I, you know, straight up, when I first read all of this, I did the very, like, cocky, like, as a reader who's never written anything professionally, I think you, professional writer, have made a mistake. (laughs) We do see him briefly, like, leading here. His new thing is peace through empathy, which he has learned on The Last Light. One of his students is Tarn which is cute. And yeah, he does get to talk to Optimus on the phone and he has this giant goofy smile and it's it's really nice. And like, in a world where I were able to let go of him, it is quite a nice ending for him. Everyone else makes it home. Rodimus is originally like, we're not going until he comes. But then Minimus Ambus innocently says the words, get away. And that <laughs> triggers Rodimus, so off, off home he goes. And I really like the Ratchet gives Rung the biggest hug when they get home. <laughs> It's just really nice. Right, as you said, that's a lot of time on that opening arc, but that's because that opening arc is very plotty, very big, very... You know, there are fans that will tell you that basically Lost Light doesn't have the juice that More Than Meets the Eye does. I think this opening arc is as good as anything in the whole book, personally, and that's why I wanted to spend so much time on it. But we do get a bit of an epilogue in issue 7. It's literally called After Megatron. It's literally called Dissolution Epilogue. (laughs) Rodimus has a new plan. We're going to take one of these Decepticon corpses that turns into a small spaceship. We're going to force it to become larger like the Functionalists did, and we're going to leave and go get a ship from Cybertron, and we're going to go get... get away! Everyone sort of notes that the vibe is a little bit somber, and they they agree it's basically because Megatron is gone. Minimus confesses he can't get the the Magnus armor on, or he can get it on, but he can't move. 
it will come to light that basically he's bummed out about Megatron and Rodimus picks up on this and tricks him into getting really, really angry and that makes him start to move again. Yeah, Magnus can only see things in black and white yes. and Megatron being a the ultimate shade of grey has broken his perception <laughs> of the world, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, it's a whole issue about about this and like Velocity is someone who came aboard the ship with Megatron already on it. She's never known anything else, so she's like, What was life like before? And Minimus will only say it was just different. He also very funnily says, I used to be a lot more uptight, um, which, which she can't. <laughs> and like Minimus, he, he like he's running late. He only does the very quickest of ship inspections. He's like, yeah, it's fine. Or it'll do, I think he says. Instead of his normal signature, like 500 page reports on the most minor of details. Rodimus picks up on this. He's like, it's okay to miss Megatron because Megatron used to read his reports. He says he was a good person who kept forgetting how to be good and that they have to respect his pain, and that makes Magnus furious. <laughs> because Magnus cannot abide by whatever Rodimus' opinions are. So basically... Well, that, yeah, yeah. He would do the opposite of whatever I said. And then Drift says, like, you're so insightful about everyone else, but not yourself. And Rodimus is like, oh, I know what I'm like, and I can't help myself, which is why I need Magnus. Very similar to how Megatron looks to these two as his conscience, Rodimus has always used Drift and Magnus to sort of steer him right. Like, this is a book about needing other people to help you on your journey. Tailgate fucking breaks up with Cyclonus, Ben. Yeah, um, that is the thing that happens. But it's, it's super sad. It's super sad, but also it is not... Tailgate does this very badly. Yeah. But the issue does reveal that like he's not fallen out of love with Cyclonus or no. anything like that. It is... It's pushing him away. He's pushing him away. He's he's treating him like a like a dog, I guess. <laughs> like where you're like, go away. I don't love you anymore. And then they turn around and there's like tears streaming down their face yeah, because yeah, they yeah. realise that they're ultimately hurting the thing they love most. Isn't television wonderful? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cyclonus had been expressing some jealousy. He was like, oh, who else have you been talking to? Because, you know, we've seen it with Getaway. We've seen it before that. Like, Cyclonus was very reluctant to express emotion in any way. And he now has all this emotion. We had it with Brainstorm and, and Whirl in the in the previous arc where he's like being really nice and it's kind of they're all like used to everyone being quippy and he's insisting on emotional honesty and it's like who is this guy? But yeah, like he he does still struggle with jealousy. Tailgate says, I've changed and you haven't. He says he's gonna stay on the Necro world while they leave on the ship. Um, he gives him back his innermost energon. They end up arguing a bit and it ends up on the floor. I really love what they do with the art here where they kind of leave it at that and Cyclonus storms off. And then this panel, we get a repeating panel of just Tailgate's face standing by himself. And then Cyclonus comes back. He's like, no, actually, no. <laughs> and I love whenever comics do this kind of thing, like using your panel work to express or emphasize like a pause. Or, yeah, like or... you're, you're, you're trying to ape the move that a film would do. And in a film or a TV show, you would like pause on a, on a shot for like 30 seconds, a minute, however long you want to do to mm. kind of like give that sense of time. Whereas in a comic book, if you just do one panel, someone's just going to skip over that. So to, <laughs> to create that illusion that time is passing, you have to have the panel repeated multiple times to kind of like have the reader move, like consciously move from one panel to the next, realize mm. it's the same, realize it's the same, realize it's the same. And yeah, how do you perceive time moving yeah. in a comic book? And this is a, a really beautiful way of kind of yeah. like conveying that in a way that both feels like filmic imagery, but also is fundamentally something that could only really be done in yeah. in a comic book. Like yeah, like comics are I think sometimes 
dismissed as quite a passive medium. Like, it's all static images. And I think you can do tricks like this to force a sense of time. Whether it be slow or fast or, or gradual. Or I love it when they will, like, have a panel only ever so slightly change panel to panel. Like, it seems like a complete copy-paste, but like their face gradually drops or, or their body language changes or whatever. It's, yeah, yeah, I love this kind of stuff. And uh, I'm sure there are artists out there who are like, oh my god, thank god that I don't have to draw, <laughs> like, this multiple times. Space Battle... Number 47. Cyclonus starts self-harming again, um, cutting his face with his claws while stops him. Those two, best buds, love it. As you said, this is actually all a deception. When the crew leave, Tailgate seeks medical help with his superpowers because of what he's been doing to Cyclonus. The solution is to put him in an isolation chamber with some radio- like some gas that will remove his, his superpowers. Uh, it will take six months though. Three months of radiation treatment, three months to decontaminate the chamber. So he's buried underground for what is said to be six months. And he's like, that's extreme, and I am scared, but I will do this for Cyclonus. Unfortunately, the moment he is put underground, those Decepticons that were trying to pick a fight with him earlier murder the Doctor and set the timer to six million years and bury the hatch underground. It's the kind of the ultimate, like, early on in, when he beats up that Decepticon, it's him him sowing his wheats, and then this is him yeah. him reaping them, like, that, that meme of, like, me reaping my reward, and it's like, oh no, stop it, I don't, I don't want this. Because Telgate did, well, the reason they're doing it is more because they just were embarrassed more than anything, isn't it? Like, yeah. And you get the kind of the the rundown of like what exactly happened with it's Fangry, isn't it? Who who does yeah, it? Yeah, I try not to name characters who are like only in it briefly. <laughs> no, I know, but like Fangry's the one who who does this, and yeah, yeah. you get this kind of like rundown where Fangry goes like, I've been acting like I've been good and hanging out with the Doctor or the the, yeah. the Doctor in this who is an expert in Sparks, but in reality I was just waiting for my moment that I yeah. could like pounce on you because I knew you were in a particularly weak state. So basically crushes the head of the expert in Sparks aboard the Lost uh, well not aboard the Lost Light aboard on, on Necroworld yeah. and then basically means that Telgate is going to be buried down there for six million years for and they the put the second end. time in his life yeah exactly and they put the end on it and it's like whoa <laughs> They do that trick again that they did in the very first issue with the scavengers, I believe. Was it the scavengers or was it the... What, where, like, the Necrobots list the necrobot arrives. their names on it? Yes, but also, like, time passes, like, you see the, oh, the body yeah, kind yeah, of, like, yeah. get older and decompose, and then they get here, and yeah, yeah. it's designed to show the passage of time, but in reality, like, I feel like that passage of time cannot have taken place in that first issue, and the same one happens here, where, like, Tailgate is buried long enough for flowers to, to bloom on Necroworld. <laughs> But it, yeah. it's obviously a trick that Roberts likes yeah. of the let's do a, a cliffhanger, which yeah. is designed to show you is taking place a lot, a long time after when you thought it was. I think when you've got a set of characters that live for millions of years, you can you can play with this kind of stuff. Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. On to a trilogy. I'm going to call the Trojan Major arc. It's not a banger, but it's I guess important. A part of it is very important for us to talk about. So Rodimus drops off, you know, they take their ship, they fly away. They drop off Nautica, Velocity, Lug, and Anode. The ladies. <laughs> they drop Women be shopping, apparently. <laughs> I didn't even pick up on that until I just listed them off. But they are dropped off on Trojan Major, which is a planet with a notorious grey market. They say that they are going to try and buy a new map to Cyber Utopia because Getaway has their map. They end up splitting up the two groups. And you get stuff like 
more chaotic anode, wants to borrow some money, steals, they have to run away from an alien. It's a very dodgy place. A grim reaper looking motherfucker wants to buy their grief. It's a weird planet. So Anode and Lug end up following, Anode can smell this metal that is used to like make new Cybertronians, or new Transformers I should say, gets a whiff of, of, of this smell and is like, oh it smells wrong. Follows her nose. They end up meeting a <laughs> A robot that transforms from a coffin into a weird-looking Transformer, who is immediately murdered by the Black Block Consortia, who are like a spin-off of the Council, not the Functionalist Council, <laughs> the Galactic Council, who are the big aliens um, who wear little hats. They end up escaping from them and meeting one of Anno's old friends. Um, I'm sure that corpse won't be incredibly important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. By escaping with Anno's old friend, Anode and Lug are trans. They're not technically the first trans characters in Transformers, and the reason why this is so important is because the last time they had an explicitly trans character, they shat the bed about as badly as you can shit the bed on a big topic like this, because RC, famously one of a handful of classic female Transformers, it's it's RC and it's Alita 1, generally. Um, RC, the pink robot that generally turns into a motorbike, appears very briefly in Revenge of the Fallen, appears much more, as I understand it, in Rise of the Beasts, but I don't actually know, I haven't watched that movie yet. Next week. <laughs> yes. When RC debuted in IDW, they explained this gender thing as an evil mad scientist forcibly turned RC from male to female as an act of torture, and RC basically became psychotic as a result. Yeah. Super murderous. Everyone yep. is scared of RC. Basically, she she kept Giaxus on a planet for centuries and basically just kept on like murdering him and bringing him back to life essentially because like he couldn't die on this planet that they were on. I think and... that part is maybe okay. Like the person who literally did it to you, it's the part where RC remains permanently psychotic and yes. is like a giant boner for murder and like yeah she is she is always whenever she comes up she is like uh for a good long while in the other book she was prowl's kind of like number two lieutenant going out and doing like covert murders yep. and then even in the book like she i feel like she softened later on like they becomes... they do some triage to try and fix this frankly offensive portrayal of gender transition where you know rc early on it's either big grins while doing murder or it's like completely dead inside and stoic and doesn't understand emotion they do gradually try to fix their mess like rc begins to say things like i feel like myself now as opposed to when i was male and when rc meets the other female characters starts to use she her pronouns and they, they do what they can to try and fix yeah, their but mess. Forced, forced gender reassignment is such a knotty issue and mm -hmm. is something that is kind of rooted in media, art and whatnot, that is definitely less progressive. And so you have... There's trans panic now, but there was definitely yeah. a sense in the 90s where you would have the joke be a very attractive woman and the male character would like go and, and bed this woman and then they would pull down their trousers and be like, oh no, a penis. Ace Ventura. Um, Ace ruined Trevor by a very unfortunate ending. Yes. And um, God, what a, what a fucking yeah. ending that movie has. But yeah, like it is definitely, it's not uncommon. And I, and I feel like even this discourse was around because obviously RC, this was done in like 2006, 2007. But I remember there is uh, the Pedro Moldovar movie who is obviously like a very well-known queer director who, who delves into these kind of like things quite often. But The Skin I Live In is a movie about forced gender reassignment mm -hmm. and 
I do think there is a split in kind of like some people viewing this as like deeply, deeply, deeply transphobic and other people going like, actually, I like the naughtiness of it all. And I don't think that exists here in the Transformers community where I think an awful lot of people are just like, no, this is kind of gross. Yeah. Where not saying this could be done like it could be done better and normally if it was going to be done better this kind of thing has to exist in kind of a horror context and kind of probably has to have queer voices or whatever to it and that just wasn't the case with rc and roberts as someone who is obviously very interested in gender and the the introduction of actual explicit from birth female transformers in a world in which basically every transformer is male even down to the fact that like when they do eventually reveal alita one in in current comic continuity she is from a different tribe in entirely from the cybertronians there's like a whole i don't know if it's the entire tribe in the ancient cybertron but there's definitely a tribe that is led by solus prime who is female and then like everyone on caminus the colony where nautica and velocity come from they are all female they all worship solus who is female yeah it's a difficult thing in a franchise where like everyone is default male basically and there's like a couple of women knocking about and like uh they they don't (laughs) produce organically you know you start to ask these questions like right what does gender mean why do they default to he him oh there now are a couple of women and where does that come from shouldn't all these transformers be gay kind of thing and like you know robert's like yes absolutely make them all gay (laughs) and then yes we get into this this trans concept and like you know it's a franchise embedded in you turn from one thing into another and like your sense of identity and you can change your body and all this stuff and i think where robert's very aware of everything that went down before did go to the fandom did go to rachel stevens a a reviewer of comics who is trans herself and consulted with her and i don't think she's ever given official script credits but does consult on the handling of Anode and Lug. You know, yeah, and, you and can... this this does feel like part of this is, and I, I text you this when I was kind of reading the books, where I was like, I think I get the feeling that Roberts and Barber have kind of a, a list of things that they want to strike off their list of like balls they threw up in the air or things they regret from kind of when Simon Furman was let go from the books that we need to, to put a capper on before the end. And obviously some of those are big things like we haven't done Unicron yet. <laughs> in the IDW universe and obviously tease a lot and obviously that will be the the very climax of the book that we will not be discussing because it doesn't actually fit into our timeline at all in the grand scheme of things but the things that are about to kind of like come back in force from when Simon Furman was writing the book in kind of 2005-2007 are the treatment of RC the magnificence and a certain character who <laughs> was always planned to be a big bad at the end of all of this. Yeah. But th- like we are basically like a lot of the stuff that is going to get introduced now is kind of more of a dotting I's crossing T's exercise of a lot of balls were thrown up before we were in charge of these books. Mm-hmm. Let's actually make this feel like a cohesive universe that comes full circle, even if it isn't the things that that Furman and those I- old IW editors had planned on doing. Let's give some conclusion to the the fans who've been reading since 2005 and this is not a plot specific one this is definitely just something that i think is weighing on the minds of the creators that they want to just draw a line under and go like no let's do this again and do this correctly and let's actually have trans lesbians uh be part of the book we've got gay robots we've had uh, trans characters but let's actually do the thing that happens to an awful lot of trans people when they when they transition is they become trans lesbians who date other trans lesbians yeah and yeah, this comes up because this old friend of Anode's calls Lug he, or, or uses a, a male pronoun. I don't, I forget the exact phrasing of it. And Anode is like, no, it's she now, and same for me. 
And the character was like, oh, is that why the change of body for you? So, I mean, you know, the implication being Anode got surgery, you know, gender-affirming surgery. Lug chose not to. And Lug is drawn ever so slightly more butch, if, if you, depending on your preferred terminology. But yeah, they both were known in the past as he, him. It isn't done maliciously, it is done innocently. Like, I genuinely didn't know you go by she now. And ostensibly, Lug has the exact same body that Lug had before. Um, but like no goes by she and they, they justify this with when you start meeting other species, when you start meeting people who have been outside of Cybertron or outside of our remit and then you've come home, you start to realise you've been limiting yourself with, with the way we classify ourselves. So this is a big thing where a lot of Transformers seemingly left Cybertron, left some of the colonies, met other races that have a concept of gender, came home and were like, I'm she now. And it made sense to some of them. And it's that thing where, like, you don't become trans. You have always been trans. It's not a thing that you can be brainwashed into by the evil left. It has always been a struggle with your identity. And you don't... It's You gain the words. You gain the, the context when you hear it from other people. When you see yourself reflected in others and why it is important. Why representation is the most important thing in the whole fucking world. <laughs> because you, you deserve to see your likeness in others. And yeah, I, I think it is all handled really well personally it's not a big thing like it is just a character moment here it doesn't again for the people that hate on this character some of them probably do hate on anode for being trans and like are like oh look the trans character beats all these badasses it's like so fucking what like <laughs> who gives a shit yeah I, I i think my main not issue with it is it does feel like it's a, it is a checkbox exercise because, a little bit like and if the book had more time if they actually got to do a season four if it didn't like because obviously i think it's immediately after these issues that we get into the mutineers when mm-hmm. roberts is told that the books will be ending he's basically given a year to wrap up what his storyline is going to be and i yeah. do wonder if he knew from the beginning of lost light would he have even introduced anode and lug and like i think they that's was the supposed to be the group that meet get away on the lost light and right start to twig something ain't quite right here and then that's that's changed which we'll get into very shortly i promise like really dwelling on the the, the biggest part of this arc once they've had these revelations they are cornered by old business acquaintances who work for the grand architect who they have been calling techie it's an unseen character they get away from from these goons they run away but basically the grand architect all of the people who work for the grand architect they wear this symbol that we've been seeing everywhere they use those words that that grimlock used they are big into like genetic experimentation they use these world sweepers these symbol ships so the one that the scavengers found all the way back in issues seven and eight which were filled with like aborted protoforms and biological experiments and Grimlock was there and Grimlock of course has been using the words and the symbol and it's starting to pick up these scattered plot elements and actually like oh this is this and clearly this was supposed to be a thing more consistently throughout the run but maybe throwing Megatron into things made Roberts get a little bit away from this side of the plot but yeah it's a whole thing they escape these goons are also after that coffin robot which they call the infinite he can transform into seemingly anything and everything he has like infinite alt modes and he can self-repair so he's actually alive and this is a new breed of transformer that the grand architect has had made meanwhile nautical velocity they're going to various dodgy dealers nautical wants to find a way to revive skids basically because she has been smuggling his 
brain, brain, yeah. brain inside her head. Like she, reve- she's been wearing an eye patch the last couple of issues, and she moves it to reveal. Yep, she's like, I, I don't even know what she's done to get it in there, but his brain has been behind. <laughs> well, her. she, she had damage to her face ages ago, and they've been oh, drawing yes. half her face like fucked up. And then at some point, she starts wearing an eye patch. So I guess the idea is there was a big enough amount of damage in her face that it can fit a brain in it a second brain but yeah um, like we we basically got to the point where she is she has come to find someone who can resurrect skids in yeah. the same way that lug was resurrected and they find who is it that is it mengel, mengel basically says like <laughs> i have what you need however this is going to take a lot a lot of payment and what we deal with here on this uh, for you to use the reza's cradle um i need to take something personal to you and that is more than just innermost energon it will be your grief essentially it like starts you're... out as grief that's the original price and as you know at the beginning somebody tried to like a random person on the street was like oh i can sense you're very sad let me buy your grief it becomes their friendship and this trio yeah. of, of issues does delve into like um, nautica and velocity's past and like you get a really nice montage of their moments and how they first met and all this stuff and um they argue about this because obviously Velocity is like, well, surely you wouldn't do this just to bring Skids back. And Nautica's like, well, we could just become best friends all over again. And Velocity's like, I don't think I would want to do that if you do. Yeah, this. I wouldn't want to do that. And also, like, would you even, would you even have any? Like, we've hung out for so long. Would you even have the drive to want to be friends with me again, or would I just be like another person? There's this like yeah. really fucked up thing. And the ultimate reveal of this is that I feel like I don't know if Mengel does it to be a dick or if Mengel does it to go through with what she was originally going to do but because she takes the grief she does take the grief yeah that means that Nautica no longer wants to bring skids back yep yeah it would remove your prize of doing it (laughs) like she doesn't take the thing she takes the emotional attachment so it's not that Nautica forgets she's friends with Velocity she remembers everything they've ever done together but there would be no emotional connection to each other she would be a person she knows and she would no longer feel anything for her and at the end here like you know she backs out of it before the friendship can be taken but she has had the grief for skids taken away so she's like you know what why would i even want to do that and it's yeah it is super fucked up the implication would be if this had gone through she would no longer remember why she wanted to do it (laughs) like she'd be like oh hey skids it's heavy shit and the two groups are brought together because it turns out that this dodgy dealer is the one that made the infinite for the grand architect they do all end up escaping but through some of this conversation we we learn that they all work for i mean the way it's initially written it seems like the grand architect is this person but he is just another one that works for him they all work for scorponok <gasps> and what they have been calling the recess the resource cradle is actually the magnificence so <laughs> <laughs> the magnificence is tied back to the very first appearance of Hot Rod, yes. as he was known then yes. in the comic books, where he go, he's basically introduced in a secret special mission, basically to steal the Magnificence from the Decepticons, Magnificence being a device that can answer any question. Yes. And it's basically... Two issues? Two yeah, it's two issues. It's a two-part arc. <laughs> first one is Rodimus doing this and his entire team dying, apart from one person. And the second one is from the perspective of Double Dealer, who ended up reve- being revealed as betraying the entire team, essentially, and getting them killed. It's mm. it's kind of a Mission Impossible-style thing. And that's kind of where the Magnificence ends, is that Rodimus asks a question, but by that point, yeah. he's needed in the main book, and he gets to wield the Matrix, and blah, 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 blah. So, just, just some of the earliest stuff in IDW comics, like this magic MacGuffin that appears twice, and they treat it like 
like it's the matrix or something yeah yeah that, but that's the thing is because it, but it's also very funny because if you were someone who was caught catching up on these books after 2017 let's say and you read spotlight hot rod one and you decide to find out oh what's the magnificence i wonder what i can find about you get a honking big fucking spoiler when you click yeah. on that name because the <laughs> yeah. tf wiki page does not redirect to a page about the magnificence it, it goes to something yeah. deep in the lore for the lost light for two weeks scorponok is appeared early in idw as well has yes, not been seen was, in a long time he was based on earth and was basically in charge of the headmaster project down on earth where he he, if you remember, Magnus turns into a female character when he uses the hollow hollow matter suits and all the rest of it. Um, human friend, yes. Is, yeah, human friend. Her, she had a, another human friend called Onion. I'm not going to bother pronouncing that correctly. Onion. Onion, who basically had the most fucked up thing happen to him, where he was forcibly turned into a headmaster, where he would bond with Sunstreaker, and yeah, like they couldn't transform without each other, and mm. like incredibly fucked up, and then eventually he was used during All Hell Megatron to do evil shit. But Scorponok had been in, like, he was the big bad of the early chunk of of idw like he's both Soundwave and shockwave were kind of both incapacitated in various ways on earth and not as useful but scorponok was like working with humans and doing incredibly fucked up things in the background kind of like debuted towards the end of the old g1 cartoon is often leading his own little rebel faction he has often been he has temporarily been the leader of the decepticons he's just he's enormous he turns into a scorpion as his name would suggest he I don't think he's a scientist himself, but like he often is overseeing super fucked up, you know, genetic stuff, his own schemes. He's a point one percenter. He's very powerful. As I said, I've said before, like Roberts always envisioned him as the big bad of the book, that it would all be leading to him. He is very much to do with the plot early on, like the scavenger stuff, the Grimlock stuff. There is some abandoned plot lines about how like he was locked up in that same prison with last stand of the wreckers and he was yeah. going to have been broken out and take Grimlock with him. And... The last appearance of Scorponok was in Transformers Maximum Dinobots which was 2009 so it's been a good long while but he's got <laughs> history with the Dinobots He's because obviously there was yeah. like this group of characters in IW that were stuck on Earth and I think they were all arrested at the same time and all taken to, to Garrus 9 essentially which yeah. is probably where Roberts was like, okay, and this is where I get to get my hands on them, because Garrus 9 is my baby. Meet mine and Nick Roche's <laughs> baby, in a lot of ways. Yes. <sighs> anyway, so he's here. He's leading this group. Again, when I first read it, I thought he was the Grand Architect. He's not. He just is sort of the chief general for the Grand Architect. And all these people with the symbols and the genetic mutations and the labs and the secret stuff, it's all tied to him. Anyway, on to... A serious high point for a lot of fans. Uh, the Plotters Club, aka the Mutiny Trilogy, issues 10 to 12. We start off with a fantastic one-shot issue where some of the characters who've been away from the crew for a while helping out on Cybertron and bullshit crossovers, they return to the Lost Light. They are greeted by an over-aggressive security team and the new captain getaway, and their shuttle is damaged, and like some of their crew are injured. So, like, you know, they have to go away and patch this person up. Getaway's being quite evasive about Rodimus and says like, oh, we, we turned all of our communications off so we could slip by undetected. Something odd is going on. Like the security are very, very trigger happy. So first aid takes the injured to the, to the medical bay, continues to be suspicious, shares his concerns about Getaway and their story. He's locked out of medical files. He is able to tell how many people are on board. It is a lot fewer than when they were last here. 
and then like you just you continually get this stuff with like getaway showing up to sort of broadly hand wave and explain things away and it's all a little bit sinister i love the way it's drawn where like first aid ends up alone in the room and there's a panel where like you just see getaway appear in the door and it's dark in the room and there's white light behind him and it's drawn at a distance it just it just feels creepy even if you don't have any of the context him just sort of appearing like oh hi there yeah and like i mean that's the thing is because we coming from the knowledge of what getaway has done and yes like they kind of diagnose getaway over the course of these issues in a lot of ways like, mm. i think they explicitly put kind of what his deal is but in this he feels there's no way for me to describe it other than manic like he genuinely mm. feels like he's going through like an episode or something where he's like clinging on to something that is very much slipping away from him he's in over his head like, yeah like and... he, he had this grand ambition he's done it and now he's doing everything he can to hold together the lie like last well, thing is like he's doing this thing where he's like he is now only focused on doing the one thing that rodimus was seemingly not that interested in actually doing ultimately yeah. but in doing so it does mean that like the people who left and were probably more sympathetic towards Rodimus are coming mm. back and going like, mm, this is a different vibe and not a yeah. vibe that we particularly enjoy. And it kind of all leads to like a meeting in Visages. Yeah, uh, the other bar on the ship, which in itself is suspicious that they oh, what about Swerves? And like Swerves is revealed to have been closed. Visages is 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 bartended and owned by Mirage main human companion of Rise of the Beasts, who's in for a very nice time in these issues. <laughs> I do like that he kind of just, he gets like straight back to work serving drinks, and they have some banter about pints versus cocktails and, and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, we don't serve pints here, we only do cocktails. Like fancy drinks with yeah. straws in them, and, and you know, like First Aid is getting a drink, and like it is all it's still very sinister, all eyes are on him kind of thing. Like, he's looking at his Rodimus star that he's got, and they'd been swapping stories about how, like, Rodimus was, like, a lovable idiot kind of thing. But they've all got this very... Everyone else in the bar who wasn't, like, the the protector bot or Mirage, yeah. who weren't on, on board the ship, like, they're listening to these stories, and they all feel off. Everyone, but... yeah, it, it has this energy of when you and a group are trying to spin a lie together on the spot and one of you's not very good at it, and you just go one too far and you break the sort of plausibility of it. Because they're spinning this story of, like, how Rodimus abandoned them, and Megatron maybe, like, convinced them to, you know, oh, it's good that Megatron's gone, and, like, you know, all this stuff. And they're just laying it on a little bit too thick, and it's giving First Aid bad vibes. Like, he's talking about, like, oh, I assumed... Hound would have been captain, which is so funny to me, because Hound <laughs> has like not been a factor in the book. And he talks about how the security team are very pro-getaway, and they will reveal what this actually means, but I like that the writing of it kind of implies that these are like trigger-happy cops. Or almost like what we were talking about before, people who like want to cosplay as army men actually yeah. being given the chance to like act as a security force. So they're like, fuck yeah, we love getaway they talk about how they don't really stop and help people anymore but they are making more progress he's like who else went and they're, they're sort of like naming all the people and uh <laughs> they really trip up because they're like oh yeah world seemed really frustrated and it's like well world seemed frustrated by a lack of progress <laughs> <laughs> and it's like literally just the rod squad and he's like yes right 
Okay. And like he does the math and goes like that isn't enough to account for yep. how many people are missing from the ship yep. because forty two fewer people are on the ship than when they left, but only seventeen people have been named. So yep. we've got twenty five unaccounted for bots. So they decide to have a secret meeting in Swerve's old bar. Yeah. And basically, like they go through kind of their discussion, and some of them have memories of being approached by Atomizer and Getaway. Yeah. And some of them don't. And obviously the yes. ones that don't were all mind wiped and would not have been part of the mutiny. Or like I, I guess that's that's the kind of the thing where like was everyone who said no sent down with a rod squad? That just they were like the rod squad was the explicit well, he, group and he then spun a lie, which we'll find out. He has sold this lie to the crew that Rodimus did run away. I don't think it's like or well, I don't know, maybe literally the only people that said no were like these people who were off the ship, the people who have been spoilers murdered and the rod squad themselves i don't know but i think also when you find out how he's pulling all this off later there is an implication maybe some of the people that were knows are kind of like just on the peripheral and the more active oh yeah i'd help you do a mutiny are like the people who have been made the security the people who are like his inner circle i don't i don't really know but yeah like some of them don't remember it mirage remembers it he also is like offended at their accusations because he's like, oh, these people are some of my best friends. This guy saved my life. I trust this guy implicitly, even though these people are lying to him. First aid, the implication is, did say he would help and then came to regret that he said he would. <laughs> but because he's been off the ship, he hasn't been, you know, mind wiped or made to actually go through with it. Riptide rocks up and is like... I also I'm... regret it, which... <laughs> yeah, I'm on your side. Like... Again, it kind of takes away some of the power of the, that first panel because he was the only one of the the quote-unquote rod squads that actually does the mutiny the one that's supposed to be the actual gut punch the like stab in the back and then even he is no longer actually (laughs) bored with it and it just kind of just robs it of some power but obviously things can't go well for long and even though they're having this meeting getaway comes in and basically reveals that in this room are all the brain modules of the people that they've killed, and the reason they're in there is because they've been working with. Well, we'll, that, we'll, we'll get into that in a second, but yeah, like, sorry. yeah, they they also I didn't mention earlier, Thunderclash is being kept locked up somewhere in a coma, and Riptide they, even even say kind of, like, "Do you think Thunderclash is in a coma because he agreed with Getaway too much?" <laughs> yeah, they kind um, of lied to Thunderclash in a lot of ways. Yeah. Is is kind of the ultimate and trajectory of that. Getaway will reveal they have trapped Thunderclash in a memory loop to keep him docile. He's not actually in a coma. He's just trapped in a memory loop. And when they discover the brains in the jars preserved in alcohol, they will obviously do a big escape. However. <laughs> They are damaged while escaping, and while seeking help, they crash back into the last light and seek help, and the issue loops back around, and they repeat literally the first four pages in full, but they add a title at the end. They have been locked in a time loop as well, and it's the moment they discover the brains that he cocks his gun that wipes your memory. So, like, this whole... They did, or I guess they did actually get damaged on the way the first time or something, and then every from then on, they are just trapped in a loop of... Landing on the ship, discovering the truth, escaping, landing on the ship, discovering the truth, escaping. <laughs> it's just, it's so well done. And like, the issue is full of dialogue, like, we're going around in circles, or we'll return to this conversation later, and circles, and, and, and time, and cyclical stuff, and yeah. It's a really well done issue. Yeah. They will then fill in the gaps. So yeah, Getaway 
freed Rung. Uh, well, we think he's talking to Rung in therapy and that he's protected by patient confidentiality. He actually got Freud, who I said was dead. <laughs> Freud and Sunder. He got them out of the brig and he's like, hey, Sunder, you can alter people's memories without touching them. How's about you convince the whole crew of my lies? <laughs> and the, the price to do that is 25 dead people. Uh, 25 brains for him to eat. <laughs> Or chew on at least. So yeah, they they had approached the crew like one at a time for weeks, months maybe. Asked them if we did a mutiny, would you join? They pitch it from the angle of getting Megatron off the ship, which is what gets people like Thunderclash to sign up. Because yeah, they don't even though well, that thing is, <laughs> but that's the weird thing is that Thunderclash has been taking orders from Megatron because he was part of like the strike crew from a couple of issues ago. Yeah. Uh, Thunderclash is such a weird. But I think some of it ship. is they asked before people started to actually take a liking to Megatron, maybe. I don't, I don't know, but if you said no, they just wiped your memories with the nudge gun. The nudge gun, right from the start, Skids had a nudge gun, and he had some missing memories, and then we, when we finally learned what was going on with that, he and Getaway, they were spies, they used thought bullets and nudge guns and all this kind of stuff, so Getaway still having his is subtle but super important. And yeah, they just they try different tacks for different crew, they talk about how... Like they mock the lonely ones for being easier to manipulate. They talk about their scheme with Tailgate that failed where they tried to get Tailgate <laughs> killed by Megatron. We see his big gloating message to Rodimus that he left um, at the end of Season 2 from his side. Some of the crew are a little bit disturbed when he calls the Galactic Council on them. He cuts off the transmission when Megatron is like offering to sacrifice himself to save everyone else. He can't have people learning that Megatron's actually become quite noble. He declines a distress call. Like, he's very much like, we need to cut off all contact for my plan to work. Yeah, isolationist. <laughs> he's he's kind of, like, fully losing control over everything, it yeah. feels like. Their, like, farewell messages when they thought they were going to die eventually reach them. Even more of the crew are disturbed, so Getaway has to start. Liberally nudge-gunning everybody. He literally says the words fake news at some point here. The panel where Atomizer shoots Thunderclash in the back, and then gets away, like, pins him down and shoots him, like, six times with the nudge gun is super gnarly. It's somehow more violent that it's, like, wife doing things to his mind than if he had just shot him. <laughs> Riptide listens in on all of this, so he is, like, got as well. As you said, we will learn what Getaway's deal is here. Freud will basically diagnose him as having delusions of, of grandeur. Like, he believes he has what are called the signs of affinity, which is, like you will one day wield the Matrix and be a Prime. And, like, he does have a head shape exactly like Optimus, but coloured differently. And, like, yeah, they've listed off... You know, they've talked about these signs before, but he is literally so delusional. He thinks he will one day, one day be called Getaway Prime. He thinks he's going to find Cyber Utopia, save the species, everyone will worship him. Yeah, yeah. and it's why he's become so hyper-fixated on it, because... Yeah. Basically, what what has happened is, but by doing this, Perceptor has figured out a way to transport the Lost Light to Cyber, Cybertron, or the, to Cyber Utopia through something called the Warren. Yeah, Tyrest ranted about it, and while Getaway was his prisoner, and it's, it, 
it, they're like quantum tunnels that let you like move around the universe much quicker, fold yeah. space, whatever you want to call it. And they've got like a map of it, and so basically they're like jumping in and out and kind of like moving to Cyber Utopia like quicker than the ship has been going up to this point. Yeah, like they've made it there in like three weeks, and this 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 little trilogy will actually end with them ostensibly reaching Cyber Utopia, which is which is wild. Atomizer's like, what's in it for you to Freud? Because Atomizer, even Atomizer, has become a bit uncomfortable, and he's like his best friend, and he's like. Getaway is so narcissistic, it's psychologically interesting to me, basically. <laughs> and I do think it's interesting that, like, this guy doesn't want to, like, rule the world or, like, do anything evil. He genuinely has this sickness where he believes he is destined to be the big hero. Yeah. But you know what heroes don't do? <laughs> Throw people into tanks of piranhas? Yes, exactly. So what <laughs> this issue ends, issue, issue um, 11, ends with, basically... We've known that Riptide is kind of like on the outs a little bit, mm -hmm. but what they basically nudge on Riptide into forgetting how to transform into his alt mode and dump him into a tank with water filled with scraplets. Which... He calls it monetizing someone. Yes. <laughs> which is incredible phrasing. Yes. He's and trading then... brains to Sunder to keep spinning new lies. And obviously the, the protector bots who got trapped in their own little memory loop that's going to require more brains. So, like, he, you know, the fucking price keeps going up and the, the lies keep getting more elaborate and he's having to put lies on top of his lies and, you know, all of this stuff. Um, but ultimately, the cliffhanger at the end of issue 11 is kind of resolved very quickly because it turns out <laughs> that the nudge gun has no effect on Riptide and has Why never had that? any effect on Riptide because he has no brain. He's simply too dumb. <laughs> too dumb. Which I feel like hasn't actually been the characterization of Riptide up to this point. Not really I at all, no. <laughs> Considering the fact that you have the scavengers in the other book who do have characters who are characterised yep. as being kind of like... Spinister would have been a great... Uh, or, or Flywheels or one of them like who are so fucking dumb would have been a great one to do this this reveal with. It's the Fry from Futurama thing. He's the chosen yeah. one because he's so dumb he's not perceptible to mind control. <laughs> Yeah, but again, I do think like this is where you start to see like they're creaking a little bit in terms of like okay, you know that you don't have much time yeah, to yeah. to kind of get back up to it, and that's the other thing in issue twelve is that issue twelve also includes how many pages? Like four pages worth of the scavengers <sighs> as well. Do that at the end. There is they literally the end of this trilogy of of like very important like what's going to happen here. They just devote four pages in the middle to the scavengers, and it's literally called Interlude. And then we go to them, and then we come right back to this book, and it's a bit strange. It was clearly supposed to be a full issue that they just ran out of issues to do, but it is what it is. Yeah, Riptide frees the Protector Bots. They combine, because they can combine, uh, into Defensor, the giant uh, combiner. If you want to find out more about that, go read Combiner Wars in the other books. Under no circumstances should you read Combiner Wars. While they're greatly outnumbered, they can combine, and that's stronger than anything. Except Getaway has brought Star Saber aboard as his new chief of security. You will remember him from having a sword duel with Cyclonus and being like so devout he's insane. He fucks them up. He he does murder Mirage, so R.I.P. protagonist of Rise of the Beasts. He takes down the Combiner. He seems to kill Thunderclash, but... I think Thunderclash lived. But they do, like, Atomizer has fully had it with Getaway at this point, so he nudge guns Star Saber. He tells them, take Star Saber's ship, get the fuck out of here, and then Getaway murders Atomizer and orders Sunder to make the crew think that Thunderclash did it. So life will go on with these lies on this ship, and now Star Saber's there too. So he's gathered up Star Saber, Atomizer, and Freud, and he's just mind-wiping the whole crew. And yeah, and then the the... The issue ends with them ostensibly arriving at Cyber Utopia. Do you feel that, like, 
the mutiny is more powerful if it turns out they aren't all actually under the brainwashing of the of Sunder. Like if they genuinely do just have beef with how Rodimus has been doing things. And I, we know yeah, some of them did go along with the mutiny, but like the reveal that he started to even the ones who were on his side started to turn on him and ended up being nice good boys, he then just mind wiped them too. Yeah. So it's all on getaway in the end. Yeah, I I do think it does rob it of some of its power, and I do wonder how much of that is coming from the fact that the writing's on the wall for the ending, and mm. the ending for this is definitely a happier ending than than you think it's going to be. And so, mm. I, I again, I I think I said before recording that like if they had a season four, would they have delved and done a redemption arc for the rest of the crew? I don't even know if they would have had time to do that, uh, even with the space that they've got. But it, it does kind of make it feel that like it this absolves a lot of people who were willing to yeah. go along with it, like. It absolves people like Riptide. It absolves, I, yeah. like, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, who are the big ones who are like Riptide, Blaster, Blue Streak, Perceptor, Blaster, Blue Streak, Perceptor, like, yeah. Perceptor, Hound, yeah, like the ones, yeah. The ones who kind of were on the outskirts of it. Who I, I could see a world where it's an editorial mandate that we can't have this many Autobots kind of go evil, even if they don't know the full extent of what's happening. I don't think it is that. I think it's more what you're saying. I just think we've talked about how there's very few Decepticons aboard and what does that actually mean? And I think a late in the book to reveal that actually the Autobots are going to do some of the most fucked up stuff in the book (laughs) would have been quite powerful. But it's just kind of one crazy guy who's in over his head. and Yeah, and I guess that's easier to wrap up in in kind of 13 issues that are left, especially when you've got to do Cybertopia as well and like include the actual plot of the book. And Rodimus has to have a confrontation with someone and it's easier to have that confrontation be with a a single character as opposed to a crew who have betrayed him. Winning his ship over again. You have to imagine if if this did go to 50 issues, if they did get that more time, then there would be an arc of like right they, they've wrapped the getaway stuff surprisingly quickly and you have to imagine this was supposed to be a right we've got to reboard and retake the lost light and like fight through all of his generals and like have this big confrontation and like it's all being broadcast to the whole crew who are gradually accepting actually Rodimus is a good guy and getaway it's, is crazy and yeah but it's especially happens. <laughs> it's especially when you think like obviously the, the mutiny is percolating for kind of 30 issues from yeah. the end of Dark Cybertron yeah. And it happens very, very quickly. But even from the beginning, when Atomizer comes to to Rodimus with that list, they are seeding the doubt around... Well, even when they have the vote, and like they're, they're saying this number of people don't trust you, and Rodimus needs to win them back, he mm-hmm. does nothing to win them back, obviously, over the course of that run of comic books. They end up mutinying against him, mm-hmm. and then all of them just get resolved. So it does. it is this kind of this yeah. big thematic thing that obviously Rob... Roberts was very interested in was how is Rodimus going to win back these people when he's siding with Megatron and there's no real capital other than pinning it all on one person who was seeding dissent even though Getaway would not have had the chance to see that much dissent by the time that first vote comes around. I think the drama of it really works like the reveal that they have been marooned that Getaway's taken the ship from them, that some of the people they know and trust have turned on them, the reveal that these people are in a time loop, the kind of all eyes are on you and it's all a little bit creepy. I think all of that really works. I think it's the sort of emotional and dramatic payoff of it that doesn't work as much, but the the high points of like the reveals and the, the vibes are all there. It's just yeah. unfortunately a casualty of running out of road. That interlude I mentioned, basically the scavengers 
are in the middle of a battle with the remnants of the of Death Saurus's squad and the council, and they end up helped through a portal by somebody unseen, and they end up taking Nickel with them. Nickel being the little, the tiny little bot that bossed the DJD around, and I, this literally exists so that the next time you see the scavengers and they have Nickel with them, you won't question it. <laughs> like, and they do say this is the distress call that Getaway was ignoring, but like. It's so bizarre to have it here. It breaks the flow. It's such a symptom that, like, yeah, we're running out of road on all of our <laughs> issues. And, you know, there's some funny little moments. And yes, it's nice to have them back, but it needed room to breathe. And it interrupting like this is is no bueno, in my opinion. And that's it. So, yeah, Rodimus, etc. have made it off-world and are going to try and catch up with Getaway. Getaway has made it ostensibly to Cyber Utopia. The scavengers now have Nickel, and we've got stuff coming together with Scorponok and the Grand Architect. And yeah, all, all the shit. pieces, all the pieces are on the board for a conclusion, which will happen in two weeks' time. It's probably not happening at an ideal moment. I I don't think Roberts has gone on record with kind of like what the the deeper plans were going to be if he got more issues. Yeah, um, I mean, there's no world where he's going to say no, and this is all I wanted to do. He definitely had to wrap up early. I don't know how much more he had planned. Um, yeah, I know, because I, I know he said that like he got to write about 100 issues worth of content, fundamentally. Uh, which in is his way more than the average writer ever gets with any single character or book or whatever. It's a rare thing to get. North of 50, I would say. Um, yeah. And that's that's a lot. And he, you know, there's a lot that we've talked about, and there's still more next in two weeks that are like and treasured just... high points of this franchise and just great objective comic book writing aside from the franchise and the medium yeah. and all that. But... but there's stuff that we haven't even talked about because like, we didn't do Chaos Theory really. No. We no. never did Last Stand of the Wreckers. If this podcast finds incredible new life at the end. Maybe we'll swing back around and do some other stuff, but probably not. As we say, in two weeks, we're finishing this fucking book somehow. Read everything that's left. I believe that is issues 13 to 25, volumes 3 and 4 of Lost Light. It will be the end. Before we get to that point, we do have to return to the movie world with, as of now, the the last, the most recent Transformers movie. It's Rise of the Beasts. Ben has seen it. I have not. I will watch it, and we will watch another glorious hodgepodge of multiple movie ideas slammed together. It worked out so well for the last night, I can't see how it could fail for Rise I don't know Beast. what you mean. We all know that Beast Wars is very well known for its crossovers with Unicron and G.I. Joe. Well, Unicron uh, was in Beast Wars briefly, but yes, yes. I don't think that's the, the thing that people remember <laughs> from Beast Wars, though. This is true. It's been another long one. Sorry, but, you know, we're running out of road here as well, and there was a lot to get through. Thank you for listening. Go to MaltMitty on Twitter, enterTheRealWorld.com, and find our show page. And tell everyone about this podcast just before it ends. Uh, Available everywhere you get your podcasts. And uh, thank you once again for your time, Benjamin. Thank you very much for doing this with me. I've got to go edit the remaining hour and a half of our last night episode if you want a timeline of where we're at in terms of these releases. <laughs> and you've got like three days to do it. Ugh, don't remind me. <laughs> Audience, roll out. This is why This is why We fight When we die Come to me.